This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. Oh, Friday before the 4th of July. It's just a match made in heaven. Welcome to the program. Celebrate the independence of your country. Yes. By blowing up a small piece of it. Well, yeah. Fireworks. Every stadium blowing up something. Yeah. In fact, I was driving up here past Lavelle Edwards Stadium. Oh, right. There, boy, you can just smell the sulfur in the air already. (laughs) We were testing. It's awesome. Uh, Happy uh, Friday, folks. Uh, So that's great. For many of you, uh, some still have to work through the weekend. Hello. Thank you for your service. And we'd seriously thank you for your service. Unless you're like a telemarketer and then... Then get a job. We, we kind of have a difficult relationship, but I understand. Yeah. And take me off your list. <laughs> hey, we got a great program for you today. Uh, three hours of fun. Mm. Mm, debatable. Um, and Parts and are fun. Parts are really fun. Parts are serious. Some parts are very serious. We're going to be talking yeah. about poverty in the first hour and really more um, kind of the poverty business. There are a lot of organizations that actually make their living on the on the impoverished. And maybe they're not they're getting government funding, government subsidies. Maybe they're not spending that money as they should. So we will be talking with Daniel Hatcher, who's the author of the book The Poverty Industry: The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens, just giving you a little bit of a heads up on you know, not all things that seem to be taking care of the poor are actually doing as good of a job as they probably could be. We'll be talking about that. It is a page turner. That is for sure. And also we are going to be uh, – we've got so much – we've got – because it's Friday. This is the day we kind of download all the news stories. Mm. We'll probably end up doing a little bit of a news flush, we call it. Get those stories out of here that we don't want to, you know – have just sitting around so they don't spoil. Do you like the name News Flush? For yes. That? We can call it a News Bonfire. No, because there's, it's hard to make a bonfire sound, but Flush yeah. is a wonderful... Okay. Or That's we could flush. do News Explosion. No, no, ooh, ooh. no. That sounded more like a lightning blast. But it exploded Yeah. something. Yeah. It's, uh, by the way, second half of the year day. We are, we are now marking the second half of the year, a chance to step back and evaluate how you've handled the year so far. I think most reaction is it's half over. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That went fast. And then it just sort of drags on till Christmas. Yeah. yeah. These are the lazy, what are they, the dog days of summer. Are we in that yet? No, I think that's more August. Yeah. Just because it gets hot and you've already had two months of hot. It already, yeah. It feels pretty more. hot to me today already. Yeah. Yeah. You, is that why you're wearing a coat? Yeah, well, okay. it's freezing in here, but uh, my drive here, I was sweating. Wow. Okay. I think that probably had something to do with my workout this morning. Could have been. Uh, International Joke Day. This is the day that uh, you we, we need to like tell jokes, and they've got to be uh, internationally funny. <laughs> right? Apparently. The first joke, by the way, often attributed to which, which civilization? Greece. Why? I don't know. Everything came out of that region. Don't be racist. No. no exactly. Specifically, <laughs> Palamedes, who's oh. credited with the invention of many other things, also apparently told the first joke. Until Palamedes came, there was nothing funny on this earth. Really? Okay. Well. No, but seriously, folks. That's something to re- be remembered for. <laughs> that is so. 
You know there were other jokes being told. Not very good ones, though. Yeah. But can't you see, like, you know, John in the Bible say, okay, so two Jews and a Muslim. Probably not. (laughs) It's Friday. Mm. It's Friday. And yesterday, because it was media day. It BYU was crazy football media here. Day. Yes. There's people everywhere. People here. Loud talking sportscasters. Just everywhere. screaming. I'm sick of loud talking sportscasters. <laughs> it's actually fun because we saw a lot of our friends from other days, days of old. Yes. And we would just hang out and talk really loud in the halls. Yeah. Annoying certain people who don't like that. I know. It's kind of bad. <laughs> uh, it's also Creative Ice Cream Flavors Day, Ben. Yep. Nobody makes more creative ice cream flavors than Ben Wasden. Or maybe an actual ice cream company. Yeah. They make creative ice cream. Right. And, and actually, well, and Ben not only makes creative ice cream flavors, but he makes certain ice creams that well, are not even health uh, friendly. Pending. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pending health approval yeah. from 48 states. Happy. Surprisingly, Utah was pretty easy to get them approved. By the way, would you would you be interested in a pickle ice cream? No. Your wife would. No. Okay. Not at all. Uh, how about how about this one? Um, vanilla ice cream, mm-hmm. a tomato slice nope. on top with some balsamic vinegar. Nope. Uh. Uh-uh. Mm, that actually sounds okay. The extent of weird combos is you take ice cream, put Tabasco sauce on it. Yeah, you do that. I don't yeah. get that. It's just sort of a hot, cold thing. It's kind of interesting. I've tried it a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. I got it out of the taba- the official Tabasco recipe book. <laughs> it said, how do you make Tabasco ice cream? Buy some ice cream. And put Tabasco on it. What's great is you can use any flavor. Yeah, so if you want a mint matter. Tabasco, do a little mint Tabasco. If you want strawberry yeah. Tabasco. I just love how they spent time with a recipe. Yeah. Just pour some on top of it's your ice cream. It's all about money. It's all about marketing. Uh, We will get to all of this fun stuff, but first, we must get to the headlines. Caitlin Thomas is with us. Caitlin, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. So a poll released on Thursday by Rasmussen Reports finds Trump actually beating Clinton among likely U.S. voters. The poll has Trump with 43% of the vote to Clinton's 39% only a week after trailing her by five points. It's the best Trump has done in the poll since October, and it shows him being supported by 75% of Republicans and 14% of Democrats. Several other polls, including a poll from Fox News, show Trump trailing Clinton. The House of Representatives will vote next week on legislation barring those on the no-fly list from purchasing guns, Speaker Paul Ryan announced on Thursday. The move comes a week after Democrats tried to force Ryan's hand by staging a 26-hour sit-in on the House floor over his refusal to put gun control legislation up for a vote. The first self-driving car fatality in the United States happened back in May as the driver of a Tesla S sports car died in a collision with a truck in Florida. The driver was using the car's autopilot driving system at the time of the crash. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said the crash happened as a tractor-trailer rig made a left turn in front of the Tesla at a highway intersection without a traffic light. President, uh, President Barack Obama is expected to disclose as early as today the number of civilians killed in U.S. military and CIA drone strikes in Pakistan Yemen and Africa since he took office and will issue an executive order that makes protecting civilians a more integral part of planning U.S. military operations. The report will not cover drone strikes in Afghanistan, Iraq, or Syria, where U.S. forces have conducted thousands of air attacks. And lastly, Matt, the U.S. food 
And Drug Administration announced on Thursday that it is unsafe to eat raw cookie dough, even if there are no raw eggs involved. While everyone knows that eggs can give you salmonella, it is actually the raw flour that the FDA is now saying is unsafe. Part of the risk comes from the fact that flour is not typically treated for bacteria, and animal waste can get into the grain before it gets processed. Happy Friday. Wow. Way to ruin the weekend. Thanks, Caitlin. We were going to have a big, uh, you know, raw cookie dough fest. So no like, wonder my kids grab their stomach after we eat a log of cookie dough. You're eating brownies. You're you're making brownies yeah. and you mix them up. And maybe you want to, you know, somebody get fight over licking the spoon. You can't I, do that either. Oh, we still do it because the flour is the problem, not the eggs. Yeah, yeah. I always thought it was the raw egg. I I had never thought of the raw but flour idea. I've eaten cookie dough. I'm, I I lived. What kid hasn't grabbed a handful of flour and just shoved it in their mouth raw? Poof. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's kind of bad news officially. I mean, in the back of our minds, our bodies are always saying, you probably ought not do that. Probably not. Just because the raw egg thing. But now, (sighs) science. Um, Man, so much to talk about. This is a a big story today. Holy cow. So do you remember Loretta Lynch? Mm. You know, her airplane pulls up on the tarmac or wherever somewhere, and all of a sudden, Phoenix... Hey, and she looks over, just so happens uh, ex-president Bill Clinton. She's in her government private jet. Yeah. Bill Clinton happens to be waiting to taxi out at the same time. It's right. hot. It's hot. So for whatever Humid. reason, there's a back a backup. Balmy. So Bill Clinton gets out of his plane, walks over to Loretta Lynch's plane. with Her and her husband are in there. He knows yeah. them. They sit down and, and they talk. They have a 30-minute private-ish conversation. And today, there's now... Uh, announcements that not announcements from the attorney general but insiders have talked to um an msnbc reporter mark Calpron, i think was the one that broke the story hmm. and he's hearing that attorney general uh, loretta lynch will accept the determinations and findings of the fbi so whatever comey says she'll do that's what she's saying which is when she could technically just just say no we're not going to prosecute yeah, she could. She yeah, she doesn't have to choose to prosecute. But they're and, they're feeling now because she had this meeting with Bill Clinton, and everyone's saying she has to recuse herself. It know? looks bad. Yes, even though she says they talked about their grandchildren and other non-essential type topics, she's going to go ahead and do what the FBI says because just you can't just, just to stay out bad. of trouble. Yeah, the whole thing's funny. Well, and it's what's really strange is apparently she. She was never one that would just, you know, rubber stamp what the FBI is going to say. Right. She would go do a, a secondary sort of look through the pro, the the, uh, the case and see if it does yeah. hold merit. So th- this is this is an interesting little, you know, hiccup. So here's her comment. Yeah. There was no discussion of any matter pending before the department. There was no discussion of Benghazi. No discussion of the State Department emails, by way of example. So they just talked about it was a casual, friendly conversation. A a similar situation. Let's say you run. Oh, before we move on. Okay. Here's Donald Trump's response as to what he feels. His response of Loretta. To this whole situation. Clip three. I think it's so terrible. I think it's so horrible. I think it's the biggest story. One of the big stories of this week, of this month, of this year. How bad a judgment is it for him or for her to do this? Yeah. Now, granted, bad judgment. But biggest story of the year? Oh, no. There's other things going on. No, no, on. Donald, you are the biggest story of the year. 
So, the mere fact that you've made it that far, that that's the biggest story. So part. let's just say you run an ice cream company. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you're under investigation from the FBI because you've been, let's just say, using illegal... Flour. Flour. Vanilla mm. from a vanilla lord in Central America. We, say we have some sort of embargo on mm-hmm. vanilla from Venezuela. Yeah. And you and your wife land... Not land, sorry. You and your wife pull up in a bus... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At a, at an IHOP. This is so plausible. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. And let's just say the prosecutor that could prosecute your case pulls up in their bus, and your wife says, "Oh, is that my friend prosecutor?" And she gets off the bus. The your wife gets off the bus and goes over and spends thirty minutes unaccounted for with the prosecutor that could prosecute your. Vanilla bean ice cream case. Right. Can't do that. It's bad. It's bad. Conflict of interest. Yes. Because there could have been a little, you know, quid pro quo kind of whatever going on there. They could have said, look, you do this, we'll do this. Mm-hmm. I'll give you some money. I'll give you all the ice cream you need. <laughs> Can't happen. Bad judgment. Donald Trump, worst thing that's ever happened in the world. Not Donald, but Loretta Lynch's yeah, meeting. Yeah, he, he's saying it's the worst thing ever. Yeah. Just conflating for his poem purposes. So, but it's weird because, again, it kind of brings uh, Hillary and Hillary's story back up into the into the play. Hillary probably wants this to just go away. Yes. That's why she keeps saying it's time to move on. Yeah. It's, it's time to move on. But... Now the press are going to be chewing on this one all afternoon. And so she's going to have to turn something. So I'll bet you, Buck, something will come out of the Clinton campaign that will be exciting and wonderful to take over the the news cycle this week or this weekend. Um, interesting uh, news, I think, I guess, you know, all around. When, when we – Bernie Sanders apparently does not hate Clinton, but he also backtracked on his idea that he was going to vote for her. I don't know if you heard that. He backed off. Yes. I, I didn't. Say, I didn't say I'd vote for. Her. He's he's trying not to just rubber stamp her as yeah. the candidate. She needs to be proven. She needs to go to the convention and have a vote. The people's voice needs to be heard. He feels like if he just says I endorse her, that it's uh, it's over and he's lost his fight. Whereas he could go to the convention, get a couple things that he finds very important that his pe- that his his peeps peeps his followers his his supporters find important. And that uh, he could make some hay there, but by by just rubber stamping it. It's well, not gonna... and again, if if this little uh, this little problem with emails keeps you know festering, he doesn't want to get out of the game yet. Who would? I wouldn't. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we will be talking poverty. Um, we know that uh, we want to support, lend a hand, help those people in need, and yet uh, the poverty industry, those organizations that are paid by the government many times, uh, that are you know working with the, on the front line of poverty, many times they're they're not necessarily helping the uh, those that are poor. Um, they might even at times possibly, I guess, be exploiting. We've got Daniel Hatcher will be joining us in a minute. He's the author of the book, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. 
just giving you some information so that uh, you can be careful and uh, pay attention. And also, I think, better understand the plight of those that are in poverty here in the United States. We'll be right back, folks. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Townsend Show. Man, you think about it, you know, America, one thing that sets us apart from many other countries is are those safety nets that we have, the programs here that are meant to help out the poor, the vulnerable citizens, uh, programs like foster care and Medicaid. But what happens when those institutions start abusing the privileges uh, that government gives them to help others? Law professor Daniel Hatcher suggests some of these safety net programs could be using federal money for themselves instead of using that money to help the poor and the vulnerables. The mean, uh, this means that people could be taken advantage of by the services that are meant to protect them. He's joining us right now um, to talk about his book, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. Daniel Hatcher, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. What an interesting um, – I mean, there's always been this pushback that all of these programs, you know, where people – it puts people on the dole. They're constantly – uh, just lining up to get the handout instead of going out to work. But th- there are a lot of people that need help and 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 are suffering because of it. But one of the points you bring up is maybe the very uh, organizations themselves may not be protecting like we think they are. Uh, thank you for the question. I mean, I mean, personally, I don't really agree with the first um, way right. you describe many individuals, but that's a larger discussion. Um, what I um, researched in the book was, um, unfortunately, several revenue strategies where vulnerable populations are being used as a revenue source. You have states and state human service agencies partnering with companies, uh, revenue contractors, to look for uh, mechanisms to increase aid, often federal aid or, or other resources, um, which I personally think, you know, like we need to get aid to those people who need the right. assistance. My concern is then when the aid is diverted from intended purpose, often the general state coffers. Do the states – so is it – are they playing with the money? They're going – they're kind of getting these big, large, uh, you know, bundles of money that are supposed to be specifically designated to the poor or certain, you know, foster care organizations or whatever – but you're saying that they're probably being rediverted, or they are being rediverted to other government needs. Right, and, and sometimes it depends on the program. And not all states are doing this in all the revenue strategies that, that I discuss in, in the book, um, but I'm trying to uncover and explain those, those strategies where money is being diverted. One of the most striking um, examples, I think, is what's happening with foster children around the country, where you have states and foster care agencies often entering contracts with these revenue contractors. Not all states have the revenue contractors helping them yet, but they um, look for children in their care who um, might have deceased parents um, and then would be eligible for survivor benefits, which is the parent worked, paid into the system, earned this benefit, much like life insurance, Mm -hmm. Um, or look to increase the number of children determined disabled so they might be eligible for disability benefits. States will then not even tell the the children that they're 
um, applying for these benefits that belong to the foster children, um, not tell them that they're applying to become representative payee to take over control of the money, and then they literally take the money from the foster children. Um, and what's happening is the states are using it as a means to reduce funding that the states would otherwise provide to the foster care agencies to provide needed services, so it results in state savings. Oh, wow. But, but children have no debt obligation to pay for their own foster care, and I personally think that's the way it should be, right? They're not the ones who put themselves in, in foster care. And, and foster children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder at twice the level of Iraq war veterans. You oh, know, wow. They, you know, these kids are going through a lot, and they age out of care. Um, statistic and, uh, and over statistic is lined up against them, and they need more help not to have their, their own funds. Yeah, and some some states will even take veterans assistance benefits from from foster children if their if their parents died in the military. So they, I mean, they really could be doubling down and using this money to give double the care, you know, mental health care to help them get through the PTSD. But instead, you're saying they're kind of surreptitiously surreptitiously taking the money um, and then reappropriating it somewhere else as a state savings, right? You know, so like when kids, when when the states and, and often the revenue contractors help, let's say when they try to increase the number of children determined disabled. So in Maryland, for example, I was able to obtain some of the contract documents, and they show a target where they want to increase the percentage of children determined disabled from the initial number of around 2%, the percentage, to upwards to 15 to 20% um, of children in foster care determined disabled, not to provide them with more services for those disabling conditions, but to take the resulting funds as as a state revenue source, mm. I, I find that to be very concerning on multiple levels. And it's a, a word you use that I mean, it, I think it explains it well. And in the book, you use the word mining. They're mining foster children for revenue, right? And and you know, I equate it to almost what's happening if you think of the coal mining industry. It literally feels like you know, children are almost like resources on a conveyor belt being mined. For revenue and some of the language that I've seen in these contract documents sound like that. You know, a, a, a contract document, an, an assessment report out of Maryland describes foster children as a revenue generating mechanism. Hmm. Holy cow! It's uh, you. It almost seems like when you're making a decision at kind of a thirty thousand foot level. That makes sense, moving money like that. But when you are, and I've done a lot of work with foster care. Um, children, when you're on that ground level, every dime matters. And so it's, it's almost like this disconnect between the people that really are trying to help, you know, person to person versus the bureaucracy. I think that's um, a, a great point. And um, I try to clarify as often as I can that I, that I think the frontline caseworkers and other advocate right. volunteers are trying to do the best they can. Um, they, they most, the vast majority really want to help. Um, children, and they don't have enough resources to do that. So this is happening much higher up, as indicated, either at, either at the state agency level or sometimes at the at the state level where the money is, is uh, being diverted from care. You say not all states do this. Are certain states uh, bigger offenders? Well, all states are unfortunately using the practice where they're um, taking the resources from foster children. Not all states use some of the other revenue strategies I discuss in the book, such as um, uh, Medicaid maximization and diversion, strategy, diversion strategies. And, and some states I, I do think are worse than others. I, I, I discussed one example um, out of New Jersey where um, the state is using the school children in a revenue maximization strategy 
um, to increase the amount of school-based Medicaid that can be claimed for um, low-income school children that are intended to help provide for their special education services, right? You know, this is a very real need. Um, but then what you see is, is the state actually requires school districts to participate and work with its revenue contractor. The schools are punished um, if they don't meet the target goals with a reduction in school funding. Mm. And then the state will divert, once, once they do claim the additional aid, which is intended to help the low-income school children, the state will divert um, uh, over 80% of that to, to general funds. So away from intended purposes. In the meantime, there's some news reports out of New Jersey that show that, that some of the schools are so underfunded, they've resorted to selling advertisements on the sides of school buses. Yeah, yeah. It, it's Okay, so explain, because there there is a, there's a weird dilemma. They've got a problem where they have a stated purpose, right? And you mentioned this in the book. Your agencies have a purpose, but then um, there is also an agency self-interest that they have to they have to survive. They have to make money and get money, but they have to get their money from the government or the state, right? So there's a there's a battle it seems like between agencies trying to look like they have they're serving as many as they can, but then they still have to get the money from the state. What's right. what's and, the and game? That's a very good way to de- describe it. You know, you have um, agencies that exist to serve, right, that are also seeking to exist. Right, right, yeah. Um, and, and, and their own fiscal self-interest sometimes, unfortunately, are, are being given priority over the very beneficiaries for why they exist. You know, I think it's a stark example with, with the foster care practice that I mentioned yeah. earlier. You know, the a foster care agency, their sole reason for existing is to protect and serve the best interests of children in their care, but then they're actually taking funds from children. Yeah. And then what, you know, even I'm concerned enough with that, you know, and I've, and I've heard some arguments from foster care agencies at the state level or, or state um, leaders that, well, we're paying a lot of money to pay for foster care, so we need to take these funds to pay back the cost of care. But, you know, I don't think foster children should be used to pay for their own foster care right. initially. But then um, what states are doing, this, this isn't even leading to more fiscal capacity, usually for the foster care agencies. Because the states will reduce funding to the foster care agencies based upon how much money the foster care agencies take from the children. Wow! And, it, and it, like you said, it's a it, shakedown, it, it right? This this shift in purpose, right? Where we have government agencies and, and our larger government institutions that are supposed to exist to serve the public welfare, you know, the, the public good, and whichever service that we're talking about, whether it's national defense or or state level, you know, services or um, public welfare. Um, but you have that shift from serving the public good to focus on maximizing revenue, and that causes harm. Hmm. And then it seems like inevitably uh, many of these people uh, would just end up staying in the system indefinitely. Well, there can be a, a cycling effect that, that I've seen. You know, if, if we you know, stay on the example of, of foster children, you know, the children who age out of foster care – um, are, are facing really tough odds, unfortunately. And many will end up back on public assistance. Many have become involved in the criminal justice system um, at some really alarming numbers or end up homeless, um, other needs. Um, so there is, I'm just looking at that from a financial perspective, there's a state cost. I mean, we all pay um, when foster children are harmed and are not doing well. So their own funds could be used when they're in foster care to help them plan for their transition out of exactly. care. Right? You know, they could conserve it and think, how do I want to use this money? You know, I represented a former foster child out of Baltimore who always wanted to be an auto mechanic. And, and 
um, but he never even had help getting a driver's license. You know, mm. like so, um, his own money left to him by his deceased father. Right, this was a survivor benefit. You know, he could have used that to plan for his transition out of care. Yeah. It would have been an immense benefit to him and to us. Yeah, univer- I mean, maybe go to college, maybe go to training centers, maybe uh, just have a little backup fund to go get an apartment. I mean, right. anything. Right. No, we all, like, for us, like, I mean, there's all these unplanned expenses that come up where you need some extra money to, to help pay for that, you know, just to have that money to help for all the unforeseen life circumstances that's going to come that way, that the way towards that child. Yeah, and we've only been talking about foster care. Let's take a break and come back. I want to talk about how Medicaid, uh, similar or kind of parallel issues going on there. Um, we'll take a break and continue this discussion. We're speaking with Daniel L. Hatcher, who's a professor of law at the University of Baltimore and author of the book, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. Stick with us, folks. Uh, Just because we're giving doesn't mean uh, we're not also taking and hurting and harming at times as well. So stick with us. We'll continue the discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we are talking with Daniel Hatcher, who is the uh, the author of the book, The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. And the question is, could safety net programs be taking advantage of America's most vulnerable citizens? Well, according to Daniel Hatcher, they are. They are, in many cases, uh, even even taking the money from these people that they, that they would be receiving the benefits that they would be receiving, you know, if their parents had passed away, um, and spending those, but not even necessarily always spending them on their own foster care help, but spending them in and taking those and appropriating them in, in some other locations. So uh, he's here today to help us uh, walk our way through this. It's a vulnerable citizenry, but it's also, you know, they're the, I'm assuming, uh, Daniel, the the government, um, you know, administrators would be saying, well, the money's got to come from somewhere, Daniel. That is um, part of the argument that, that I've heard from, let's say, the higher-ups, the secretaries of departments of human resources and, 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 and various states or, or even from governor's offices where um, it does cost money to, to run human service agencies that, that are providing services to the vulnerable. And I, um, that raises a good point. You know, I think why this is happening um and, and to a large extent is that states across the country are, are largely cashed cash strapped and um, have not been um willing to raise sufficient revenue through general taxation other means and looking for money elsewhere you know we reached a point where we even have foster care agencies taking funds from their own beneficiaries and it's um it's striking not just in the loss of services then to those vulnerable individuals who need the help, but again, it, I think it shifts the purpose of these government agencies away from maximizing the public good to maximizing revenue. And I, mm. I personally think that's a concern, and, and, I, and I, in my book, you know, I'm covering examples where harm directly results from that. Yeah. Talk about the Medicaid uh, kind of money moment, money laundering experience that you cite. Sure. So uh, 
there's many examples, and, and there are, I should stress, there are many, many examples where states are using the funds the right way, right? And, and, right. You know, I, and I think that provides a much-needed service. Um, my concern are, are where I found examples where states are diverting the aid funds from intended purpose. Um, in Indiana, I'm from Indiana, and um, uh, there's an example I found at a more local level um, out of um, Indianapolis, where the um, health and hospital, this was reported in the papers there, where the, where the Health and Hospital Corporation out of Indianapolis runs the hospital system, the broader health system there. It's a municipal agency. Um, uh, found a way where it could generate more revenue by starting to buy up for-profit nursing homes. Um, so it started buying up for-profit nursing homes, not just close to Indianapolis, but all around the state of, of Indiana, corner to corner. Um, and then often, you know, according to the reports, it would buy up the licenses to run the nursing homes and sometimes even hire the very same company that it bought the licenses from to still run the, the, the nursing hmm. homes. But um, by becoming government-owned, you know, once they bought the licenses, they could trigger a higher um, claiming of federal Medicaid funds. And these were funds intended to help provide better services at those nursing home facilities for the elderly. Oh, wow. Indiana has received very low marks in terms of its quality of care for, for nursing home residents, especially low-income nursing home residents, um, sometimes the lowest in the, in the country. Um, but the Health and Hospital Corporation, once they claim these additional federal aid intended to provide better care for the elderly, um, it routed the money to, to build a multi-million dollar hospital system in Indianapolis. Now, you know, at least that's going towards a health care purpose, but that's not the way the money was supposed to be used. It's supposed to be used to help provide better care for those nursing home residents. Wow. I mean, you you, you see um, it's, it's becoming a revenue source. So poverty and poverty-serving agencies are revenue sources for the government. Sometimes, unfortunately, that's an accurate uh, assessment. Um, and again, that's that concerning shift. Um, and, and purpose and focus, you know, I think mission matters. You know, I think we all can disagree about how we should best structure aid programs, and I think that disagreement, yeah. discourse, dialogue, and those issues are, are wonderful, and this is what our country is all about, you know, to, to have those discussions. But I think, like, we should all be able to agree that if we have public aid designed, created for a specific purpose, that that money should be used as intended. It shouldn't be diverted away from intended purpose. And um, one of the points you make in the book too is that this isn't uh, this isn't a shrinking or uh, you know industry. This industry is growing. Unfortunately, yes. And, and you know the the states are partnering with with uh, the private revenue contractors. And um, you know I, I discussed some of the examples where uh, some of the very companies that that were involved with what was called the military industrial. Uh, complex um, have also become involved in the poverty industry. Companies like um, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, also providing um, child support-related services um, and the like. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these contracts that I've that I've looked at, these revenue contracts, where you have states or the state agencies partnering with with private revenue contractors. At the end of the day, the responsibility I think lies with our our government leaders because they're the ones who are. Um, determining the scope of the contract and the structure of those contracts, and then, like, how to use the funds. So Maryland, for example, when it, when it works with a revenue contractor to help obtain more 
disability and survivor benefits from children. It's, it's Maryland that's, that's deciding to divert those funds away from the children rather than to use them as they should be. So really, then it would be those, those uh, government officials that need some pressure put on them, they, they, I, right? I think so. I, you know, I think awareness matters. You know, that, that's, that's my yeah. hope is that the more we are aware of, of practices that are occurring, you know, again, I think, you know, we can have disagreeing viewpoints on that, but to start reaching um, solutions, we need to know what's happening, you know, like before we can reach, move forward towards the correct solution. Yeah. And let, I mean, I guess reestablish their purpose is very clear. This is what you're to do. These are your outcomes we're looking for. And your money stays there. Right. No, yeah, and some of this isn't complicated. You know, yeah. money intended to help children children should be used to help children. You know, and it should be their money, right? So if, right. if if money is taken from a child because of benefit survivor benefits, that money should stay with that child. It's their money. It's right. an entitlement. And and I've been involved in some litigation actually around this, you know, like the the foster care agency when they take control over the children's survivor benefits, for example, they take on a fiduciary obligation. You know, they're obligated legally to, to only act in the best interest of that child and determine how to best use that money to to help the child. But when you have the agency instead taking the money to pay back the state costs, yeah. money that the child has no legal obligation to pay for, that's an outright breach of fiduciary obligation. Could would could there legally be recourse, you know, five years later, could a child from foster care go back and say, I want you to prove that you were fiduciarily, you know, in my interest? That's a great question. You know, I do think litigate, litigation efforts can be brought in various states. There's a challenge for foster children in bringing a claim directly against a state agency because in many states there are tighter time limits from which the right. um, you can bring a claim against the state. In Maryland, um, I ran into that with a, with a former foster child that I tried to help, and the foster care agency, the state, argued this child who entered foster care at age 12 um, for him to have had a timely claim, should have brought his claim against the state within one year of when he was brought into foster care. So he would have been 13 in foster care, and the state was not even giving him notice. He didn't even know that he was eligible for survivor benefits, huh. that the state was taking it. But but they won on that argument, yeah. you know, that unfortunately said he didn't bring the, the, the case in a timely fashion. Doesn't this happen in... Um in like senior care as well, when you go to when the the state will actually go in and and take your any assets owned by the person and use it for the supposedly for their care in a in a senior living center or whatever. There are examples, <clears throat> excuse me, where um, funds are also obtained from or older Americans, um, both with the practices that I that I yeah. focus on in the book with Medicaid and then other you know um, assets that belong. Um, to our older Americans, you know, and I, I think it's very concerning nationwide, you know, on average, we're not providing high quality care um, to older Americans in this country. And I, I think that deserves a closer examination of right. our priorities. Well, and if that money is going to go out of my mom's house and into uh, some government coffer that has nothing to do with her care, it's that's really upsetting. I, I think when, you know, someone has, you know, lived a long life and, and, um, you know, worked, you know, you know, tried to struggle to make their own way in this society that they should be treated better, you know, when, when they're in need of care. These people, the, the poor, they're not, I mean, it's almost like people feel like there's, they're out to just get America, but th- they're hurting, they're stuck, a lot of them, they're trapped. I mean, a foster child is as innocent as they can come. 
in their situation. I've done a lot of work with with low-income populations. My my first job at Legal Aid was representing children in the Baltimore foster care system, and Mm. I've worked with many low-income individuals and families and other legal issues. And um, I do see, on on average, most people are struggling, you know, and they're working. They want to do well, and it's like system after system and barrier after barrier that's um, creating difficulty for them. So, so it is very difficult. And, and I try to stress in the book, you know, I use the phrase vulnerable uh-huh. a lot in the book to talk about low-income children, impoverished families, the disabled, um, elderly um, Americans. I think we're all vulnerable. Right. You know, we're, we're all often just one paycheck away from, from poverty. And how a foster child is impacted, like when a foster child is hurt, it affects us all not just morally, but as I described before, you know, we pay the cost when that child um, suffers and and then doesn't do well when he or she ages out of foster care. How, um, what would you recommend to the listener to do? Uh, Obviously, get the book, um, The Poverty Industry, but what what would you recommend we do? How should we approach our our leaders, our government leaders, and, and push back? Well, that's a wonderful question, and there's multiple layers to that, you know, depending on the issue. But I think to start, awareness um, matters a lot, you know, to to understand what's happening. And sometimes that's a challenge, you know, state by state. The budget processes are less transparent in some states than others, and sometimes much of this is happening at the county level. So what I suggest is, like, you know, it might be that that a, a listener knows somebody that's impacted by a program, you know, and if they're um, a friend or advocate or family member for that individual, then try to understand, you know, on a, on a particular issue to try to help um, dig in and what's actually happening. Um, and then as you understand one process, that can help you see the bigger picture, and that allows you to be in a situation where you can provide more um, pressure on your elected officials to to do the right thing. Foster care, for example, I mean, that's something that states could change right now, agencies could change right now where they stop taking uh, disability and survivor benefits from foster children. So yeah. people could become directly involved in trying to apply that pressure. That's powerful. I mean, again, it's it's these are all people, right? This, these are people issues, and they have to be solved by people in the government, people pushing on the government. I agree. And, and you, know, you know, like you said, you know, these are foster children's own funds yeah. you know, that, that are being taken, and, and they just want to use their money to help themselves. Yeah. Oh, brother. Well, Daniel, appreciate it. I think it's a great uh, work and wonderful research. That's, uh, we're glad you were on the show to enlighten us. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate this opportunity. You bet. Daniel L. Hatcher uh, is his name, professor of law at the University of Baltimore. The book is called The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Children. Uh, folks, we got to take care of each other and uh, push back a little bit on our government and, and make sure that we're doing it. We're not stealing from Peter to pay Paul, right? We'll take a break. We'll come right back. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. There is, um, there is a, a principle called uh, scope creep, you know, in my consulting world, where we start with a project, and we're going to focus in on that project, and then the project starts to creep bigger 
and bigger, and the scope is no longer this targeted scope of helping foster care children. The scope starts to to grow. And not only are we going to help foster care children, we're also going to, you know, help have those children maybe even help other children. And the way we're going to do that, because, you know, a lot of these kids might get survivor benefits or other types of benefits, we're going to take the benefits that were allocated by the government or state for that child, and we're going to redistribute them over here to help these children. Now, um, I get it. I get it. Money's got to come from somewhere. However, you, you, you still have to live principles, right? There still have to be principles of of honesty, of fairness. You can't just take someone's resources, half them, quarter them, and give the rest to someone else, especially when they're a minor and you are their fiduciary guide. So we, what we do, I guess, is we try to express charity by exercising the principle of stealing can you see that this eventually might create some problems? Well, so do you just want everyone else to be taxed more? I don't know. Maybe there is a tax that has to happen to serve somebody. But I wouldn't start with a tax. I would start with looking at scope creep. It's everywhere. That's why bureaucracies just never end. They just keep getting bigger. And one of the reasons they keep getting bigger is because the industry itself has to sustain itself, right? So it has to keep getting bigger in order to continue to seemingly sustain itself. So it's going to find every method it can to gather and garnish the money that – or garner the money that it could take from anyone they can get it from to keep their supposed mission alive. And we call it charity, right? We call it good works. I have worked extensively with foster care agencies and programs. The people on the front line are doing everything they can. And yet state officials are the ones that have the responsibility to get money to these organizations to take care of these kids. Are they being taken care of better than probably ever in history? Probably But uh, another dilemma I think we've run into is we've removed churches from a lot of this. We've removed, you know, religious organizations from a lot of this. We've removed other service organizations that would have performed a lot of these things. They're just gone. Now it's just all left to the government to do it. And so be careful. We have to remember you can't use stealing as a method to take care of service. You're not, you know, Robin Hood. I know it makes a great movie, but at some point, we've got to be able to figure out how we can do both. How can we serve these people and, you know, honestly get the money to do it? And there's other principles at play, like discipline to not have scope creep. Anyway, that's my high horse. Just trying to find some solutions, folks. Let's just start with you then. You take care of your family. You take care of your kids. You take care of your neighbors. You go volunteer with the Foster Care Foundation. We'll take a break, folks. Come right back. Two more hours of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. So much ahead. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of the program. Locked and loaded. We've got so much to talk about uh, today. Uh, We will be getting to... Uh, a new decision by Chinese um, officials to create female-only parking spaces for unskilled female drivers. We will, we'll be talking about it, and it, it perfectly aligns to uh, our guest today. Uh, Christia Spears-Brown is going to be talking about how to parent beyond pink and blue, how to raise your kids free from gender stereotypes. Apparently the book... Not a big seller in China. Mm. But the, China, they're looking at it as a public service. They're trying to help. There's apparently a segment of the population that's having some difficulties, well, and they want to help. <laughs> so they're going to create parking stalls. Uh, we'll talk about it. They already it. have. Well, they, and they're going, they're designated stalls. They're a little wider. L- a lot wider. Isolated I think. away from the rest of the population. So there's not other cars. So you don't need to parallel park. It is so... Just wrong in so many, and I, th- I think they're even pink. That would be an easy way to designate that. Oh boy, we'll get there. We'll get there, Ugh. and we'll get to our our guest, parenting beyond pink and blue: how to raise your kids uh, free of gender stereotypes. And and two, I mean, research is just research, right? So Terry, if it were more acceptable for you to play with dolls, would you have? My father. Thinks that I did. He used to call my G.I. Joe action figures. A doll. Dolls. And I would get so mad. Yeah. They're not dolls. There was actually a court case at one point where Hasbro, who made the G.I. Joe toy, was they designated the toy in court as a doll. They were trying to designate it as a action figure, and there's some sort of tax break they would get. Really? Yeah, so it was a big deal because they couldn't have this toy meant for boys <laughs> yeah, called no. a doll. It it's just an action work. figure. Duh. Everybody knows it's an action figure. <laughs> That's sad. We'll get to that. Uh, plus, we are going to have an in-depth review of why beards are so popular by Leanna Tan. She's done some research and um, interesting stuff. Beards are back. And it's great for those of us uh, that can grow beards. Two of the three of us in this room can actually grow a beard. So it's exciting for us. We'll be doing that this weekend. Now let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Caitlin, what's up? Hey, Matt. A meeting between former President Bill Clinton and Attorney General Loretta Lynch has sparked controversy after questions have emerged about the content of the conversation. The meeting at Phoenix's Sky Harbor Airport reportedly happened when Clinton was waiting to depart and walked over to Lynch's private plane on the tarmac. Lynch has said that they did not discuss Hillary Clinton's email controversy, which is the subject of a federal investigation. Still, some are skeptical of Lynch's denial. Presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump is reportedly vetting Chris Christie to be his running mate in the general election. According to CNN, the New Jersey governor has received the necessary paperwork for the vice presidential vetting procedure. Trump said that he would announce his running mate at the GOP convention in Cleveland next month. Vice President Joe Biden said he spoke with Bernie Sanders and said the Vermont senator is going to endorse presumptive Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. Oh, I've talked to Bernie. Bernie's going to endorse her. This is going to work out, Biden told NPR. 
Donald Trump said he's deflecting pleas to make the upcoming Republican National Convention all about him. Trump told the New York Times the people want him to speak on all three nights. Though everybody wants that, he said he wants to make sure no one gets the wrong idea. I don't want people to think I'm grandstanding, which I'm not, Trump said, but it would get high ratings. Instead, he's planning to get celebrities to fetch those high ratings for him. And a study published this week finds no connection between eating butter and an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. On the contrary, researchers found eating butter might actually make people slightly healthier by reducing the risk of diabetes. Researchers found that eating butter was in no way associated with a risk of stroke or heart disease and reduced the risk of type 2 diabetes by 4%. Researchers say that while butter may actually be healthier than sugars and starches, it's probably still worse for you than olive oil or some margarine. Paula Dean for president. (laughs) Sorry, did I interrupt your newscast? (laughs) No, I'm... uh, Turn it over to oh, you. Oh, that's so great. The, the, art- you, the article started with, me. we all may need to apologize to Paula Dean. <laughs> Did it start that way? <laughs> oh, Paula, you were so right. It's okay to cook everything with butter. It's but fine. And that has nothing to do with her other racial issues. Yeah. <laughs> However, <laughs> we are so grateful that the butter thing's been cleared. That's great. America can now eat more freely. America put butter on your corn this weekend. Oh, that's some good news for all y'alls. Wow. Okay. Good news. I'm happy. What else do you need to say? I'm pretty sure Bill Clinton didn't say anything to Loretta Lynch. They talked about their grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. 30 minutes. And on the way out, listen, don't make me come after you. (laughs) Do not make me. I have people that have people. The implication of impropriety. You just have to stay away. You just stay on your plane. Ben, you stay on your bus. Okay. Just stay away. He'd be on his skateboard. Stay on your skateboard. By the way. Yeah. I wanted to play this for you. What? Clip one. This is Donald Trump at his rally yesterday. Mexico, and I respect Mexico. I respect their leaders. What they've done to us is incredible. Their leaders are so much smarter, so much sharper, and it's incredible. In fact, that could be a Mexican plane up there. They're getting ready to attack. He just points at the sky at an airplane flying over. You know, it's so weird because for a second I'm thinking, wow, that's going well. You're like, he's on message. Look at that. And then he just, you know. That really is – that's a great way to phrase it. So instead he's kind of – he kind of phrased it like we need to kick the the Mexicans out. But now what he's – that phrasing was they're smarter than we are. They're they're manipulating us. And we can't even control it. Hold it. There's an airplane. I bet that's full <laughs> of Mexicans to come destroy it. They're coming to attack us. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> it's seriously. It's like shiny thing. By the way. Yeah. A new poll. I know you love polls. I love polls. Public policy polling. They do a bunch of they do legitimate polling and then they mix in like a ridiculous aspect to the poll. Yeah. Just to keep things interesting. Keep it edgy. So they polled uh, – the, uh, the firm offered a hypothetical third candidate for the 2016 election, a giant meteor. And not just a giant meteor hurling out there in the inky depths of space far beyond Washington and all that stuff, but actually one that would hit the planet. They wanted, they wanted to see how a giant meteor hitting Earth would match up against Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. As it turned out, the giant meteor does surprising well. Does, does surprisingly it? well. It says, we find that the meteor would pull 13%, far more support than any third-party candidate <laughs> actually on the ballot. Clinton at 43, Trump at 38, meteor hitting the planet, 
Well, it would sure save you from having to move to another country. Among independent voters. Yes. Surprisingly well. Really? So the independents really like that. They're calling it a functional three-way tie. The meteor, 27%. Wow. Clinton, 35, and Trump, 31. That is fantastic. So what are the odds we'll have a meteor? Very, very small. Ah, darn it. But the meteor's doing well. Isn't that funny that they're even asking? How (laughs) would you rather die? I, I think they're bored. Having Hillary lead us, Donald lead us, or a meteor destroying us. Yeah, they are bored. Hey, um, okay, we've got to get to this story while we can. Yes. Um, Chinese. Whoa. Oh, whoa, whoa. Uh oh. Hi. Uh oh. What, what do you see on the. Um, radar? Don, Don wanted me to, to do a trigger warning for this yeah, one okay. because. Trigger I, warning. Okay, so, yeah. For anybody, I guess, that uh, doesn't like stereotypes. Stereotyping, sexist stereotypes, sexism, Chinese uh, government officials, shaming of women, shaming drivers. of women drivers. Yeah, that kind of. Okay, stuff. that's good. Okay, that was close because we almost just started it. Yeah, without a warning. Um, here's the deal: Chinese officials uh, in in we don't even list the city anymore because we can't pronounce it. It's them, just China. We're fine. <laughs> said that larger parking. Now this is not us saying this. We're just restating what they say, and then. It'll help us because we're also going to be speaking with a professor about how not to do this. It's called the tease. Yeah. Apparently, that that uh, they they need larger parking spaces in China, but they're only meant for female drivers. In response to the difficulties women have while parking, the female-only spaces are designated in parking lots, uh, um, and they are fifty percent larger than normal, and are outlined in pink. This with, is great. By the way, and, and in case you were a guy trying to park there, they're pink with a drawing of a skirted figure similar to one that might be found on a bathroom door. <laughs> the director of highway service uh, in the area said that the spots were installed in response to female drivers who were having trouble backing into spots and they're see, being seen and viewed as parking carelessly. So they're helping. They're helping. <laughs> And he says uh, the female-only parking spots have been well-received by female motorists. Right. You know. And we, what we've done, I think we put together a video. We, we found a video of, of somebody parking. We did in, in China. But this, was, this was somebody parking without the pink special stall that helps them park easier. This is what it sounds like. Oh, 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 boy. Back it up, back it up. Back. Oh, 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 oh. Careful. Slow. Uh, go forward. Just go forward. That, that left a mark. Yeah. Oh, back it up, back it up. Oh, ah, brother. <sighs> this is so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> I like how it's pink. Yeah. It has the universal sign for, you know, female bathroom. Would you and like, but let's just say, let's say you have a really expensive car. So I'm, I'm going to buy a new car. When I buy a new car and I'm pulling in my Maserati, let's say. Mm, right, right. I should probably be able to park in that spot because it'd be 50% bigger. Right. I could park this even diagonally. Very logical. Diagonally. I wonder if uh, that's going to create problems. It also seems like it's um, it's unfair to male parkers that don't want their car dinged. Mm. Or what about a man that can't 
park. Well, I, no, no. What what they're saying is no. men can park. That's what they're they're yeah. saying without saying. Allegedly, studies have found that yeah. men can park. Is it because I think genetically men have a parking gene? Yes. That helps them to well, parallel park? The local government is is saying without saying that yeah. men have solved the parking issue. Women, they need a little help. You know, I saw an Allstate commercial that was different than that, just saying that, <laughs> yeah. And then the guy told our dude. But, but also, I, there, there might be a, um, a small subset, we'll just give them the benefit of the doubt, yeah. that believe that men have solved most problems. Oh, yeah. And don't need m- much help, and women are the issue. <laughs> Man, I'm just you know. No, I've heard. There of could that. be that that feeling out there. See, the- this is the problem with a gendered stereotype. Yes, because it's not all the way true. Um, you know, there are female race car drivers. Yes. Hello. Let's let's not get into that. Let's that- have, but let's have that female race car driver. Yeah. Well, park against any male driver. Th- there is a a theme in certain NASCAR like well NASCAR well where the female driver gets a lot of flack for certain behaviors. Oh, sure. So. But it's, again, it's sexist. Except for the, the accidents and she happens to always be there is kind of the idea is that, that this driver causes accidents and well, she happens to be involved in them okay, somehow every time. Statistically, statistically, now, there's yeah. more men in accidents in NASCAR, yes, but Formula One. And it's a total stereotype and yeah. it's a total like – Men dominated sport, and a yeah. woman is trying to Most get into there. Most are caused by men. Yeah. Most wars started by men. But whenever she's spoken about, people just go, oh, yeah. she's always causing wrecks. You know, and I think you that's serious? not fair. Come on. Come on. That's what we got to blow up today. We're going to do it. Um, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be visiting with uh, Christian Spears Brown, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Kentucky and author of the book Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue. How to Raise Your Kids Free of Gender Stereotypes. Um, we're going to pick her brain, find out how our parenting might be might be actually negatively impacting our children. For example, we talk less to baby boys than we do baby girls. Do you think that impacts them down the road? I'm going to bet it does. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, we've got a we've we've we figured it out. Our next guest is going to be able to help us with this Chinese problem. Obviously, a gender stereotype. Women don't need their own parking stalls. Uh, you know, studies on gender and child development show that on average, parents talk less to baby boys and are less likely to use numbers when speaking to little girls. Without meaning to, we constantly color code children, segregating them by gender based on their presumed interests. Our social dependence on these norms has far-reaching effects, such as leading girls to dislike math and in uh, increasing aggression in boys. Here to discuss her book, Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue, How to Raise Your Kids Free of Gender Stereotypes, is Dr. Christia Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Did you hear the story uh, out of China about female parking places? I heard it vaguely. Oh, unbelievable. 
traveling, so I didn't hear much because I was just coming out of um, Denmark. So I kind of missed oh. a major news story. Yeah, you're going to need um, to look it up because you'll want to use it in your class. Of just, it's China thinks women can't park, so they gave them bigger parking stalls with a pink girl, a woman in a dress. Yeah. <sighs> so this is our dilemma, right? So we we yeah, live exactly. in this we live in this world, and. Um, Gender stereotypes, they come up, but so there's kind of the overt thing that we shouldn't stereotype. Um, But then I think some are confused. I'm even confused sometimes because there do seem to be differences, but the differences aren't always gender differences, right? They're just people differences. Right. I mean, I think that's a big thing that I often talk about is that there's lots of individual differences. The problem is, you know, and this happens a lot of times with parents. They have a daughter and a son and they'll say, see, my, my kids are so completely different from one another. When the reality is individuals are really different from one another. Right. And we differ from individuals more than we differ as groups. So, you know, I have two daughters who also drastically differ from one another um, just because of those individual variations and just how people are. And we need, the, I guess the point of your book is you're a parent, You've, you really have to look beyond the gender uh, stereotype or you may actually be impeding your child. If you're not talking to your boy simply because you think he's a boy, um, then, we, then he's going to have troubles later. Right. And I think it's really the sneaky. I mean, I think these stereotypes filter in in really sneaky ways. I mean, I think most parents say they treat their kids similarly. Um, No parent, I think, wants to perpetuate gender stereotypes. It's really the subtle ways that it filters down into our kids that makes it, for one, harder to change, but two, really kind of infuses everything kids grow up with. Mm. And, And like there is a, and you tell me, is there really a math, you know, division between boys and girls? There's not, actually. So there is a difference in how parents talk to their kids, right? So I heard in your little intro is that parents do talk about things like numbers twice as much to their sons. And again, it's not that we're telling girls you can't be good at math. It's never like that. But the kind of way in which parents talk to their toddlers, look, you have three raisins. Oh, look, four red cars. That type of missing of numbers is what parents do twice as much. So what we see then is when kids get into school, although boys and girls do the same, in class, math class, they do the same on math test. But where you do see the difference is that boys feel more confident in math than girls do, mm. and boys feel less anxious in math than girls do. So there's a tricky kind of finding there is that they're doing the same, but boys feel kind of overly confident and girls feel underconfident, and boys feel no anxiety, whereas girls feel anxiety even though they're doing perfectly well in class. Yeah. And and maybe better than the boys all around them. Oftentimes. But then what you find is because they feel low, you know, they don't feel confident, they feel more anxious, even though their grades in math are good, they're doing it well, they're not likely to major in it, for example, when they go to college. Hmm. So then you get the big divide where you have very few kind of female computer engineers and very few female engineers and mathematicians because they're, they have the abilities, but they're kind of opting out because they don't feel as comfortable. So when we are parenting with a bias – whether consciously or, or, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously, mm-hmm. we are – we're probably impacting their – kind of their belief in themselves, their confidence more than That's, maybe anything. 
That's exactly it. And what we see time and again in developmental psychology is that kids' beliefs about it, their kind of belief about whether they'll be good or not at something, is actually more important than their actual objective abilities. Hmm. Do we need to – well, first tell me, what are some more gender stereotypes that we may not even be aware we're doing? Well, I think one of them has to do with kind of the flip of math is verbal, is that we think that girls are much more verbal and can learn language better and things like that. So what you see is that parents talk less to sons than they do to daughters. They're more likely to read longer to daughters than they are to sons. Um, They're more likely to look at them in the face and talk to them um, and really foster those kind of conversational skills that we know. Then then when we see, you know, kind of adults, we see women are often feel much more kind of conversational than the men, they didn't start out that way. They just got a lot more practice in having that back and forth conversation and language that boys were just not getting as much. Um, we also see differences um, in that we really perceive that boys are not as emotional as girls. Yeah. You know, one of my <laughs> biggest pet peeves is the constant saying, well, boys don't cry. But it's always <laughs> usually said in the context of a boy who is crying. Right, exactly. That's you know? <laughs> so true. Um, it is. And so it's like the idea is that boys and girls have the same kind of emotional spectrums. Boys can be sad, and um, but are often taught not to express that sadness, whereas girls are really taught how to have that language about their emotions. And boys were told, you know, we tell them, don't feel sad, don't don't express it, just toughen up and be the man. Um, we we used to, what, that, not to interrupt, but there was a big, for years people believed that women used three times more words than men did. Yes. And that was just blown out of the water. Men and women use virtually the exact same amount of words. But mm-hmm. we do use them differently, don't we? We do. And so there's some difference in that. So meta-analyses, kind of big studies that have looked across lots and lots of individual studies, have found that exactly what you say. They don't differ in the number of how much we talk. But girls and women are a little bit more likely to use what they call kind of affiliative speech. So I'm more likely to ask questions, ask opinions, um, try to reach agreement with yeah. their language, whereas boys are a little more likely to be assertive in their speech. So to state their own opinion or to make statements or to make requests for, you know, I need you to go do this. Um, so we're using them differently. Girls, it's a little bit more to kind of bring others in. And boys, it's a little bit more to be assertive. Yeah. Um, but again, that's also part part of how we've been really socialized. Yeah, and we don't I, I don't even think we ever need to really worry I mean you do, I did when I was studying it, but we don't need to worry about you know the dialectical differences and you know and and interactive differences. But yours is more just don't don't take a bias, a color bias in to to how you treat them. Right, cuz what we see is you know when you look at infants and babies for about the first couple of years of life, there really are very, very few differences. Really, you know, people often say to me, well, my husband does this, and I'm like this. I was like, well, yeah, because we've had a whole history of living in these really two different worlds, kind of the pink world and the blue world led to a lot of times differences that really just don't exist at the beginning. But when we color code and segregate and emphasize to kids that gender is so important, then what we see is kids really create their own stereotypes. So, you know, Mm. we emphasize really early on what a smart girl you are, what a big boy you are. Okay, all the boys and girls line up over here. Let's have Hmm. girls do this. So the constant talking about it and segregating it and color coding it really says to kids this is really important. Everyone always mentions I'm a girl every time they talk to yeah. even when it's positive of what a strong girl I am, what a big girl I am, look at what a good girl you ate your peas. 
if they're always saying it, it must be really important. So let me figure out the ways to be a good girl. And so what they do then is they create these kind of worlds for themselves. So girls only want to play with girl toys, for example. You know, there's these really clever studies where they bring kids into a lab and they have one toy that kids have never seen before. It's kind of a made-up toy. They tell some kids this is just for girls, and they tell other kids this is, you know, or, I'm sorry, they tell some kids girls really like this. They Girls think this is fun to play with. And what we see is that girls then say the toy is really fun. They like huh. to play with it. They play with it longer. The boys don't want to even touch it. You take the exact same toy, but you put it in a blue box, or you say, this is something that boys have really shown to be good at. Then the girls won't touch it, and the boys say it's so much fun. Exactly wow. Toy, yeah. But they want to kind of do what they think is right for their group. And, and fit in, I guess, right? They're trying to probably exactly. assimilate, fit in, yeah, exactly. and have their niche. We do. We make a – I mean, our. it's interesting what a big deal our identity – how much of our identity is wrapped around our gender or our sexuality mm-hmm. or even our, our you know, political persuasion. Right. When in reality, we're all like 99.99% whatever the same. Yes. And – and and these stereotypes uh, seem to be just something also i mean i guess i guess they're helpful to create community for girls and boys right but right. they also divide us they do and i think they're fine if you're the kind of prototypical stereotypical girl sure right you know? fit right in some girls are that and there's nothing wrong with that the problem is most of us fall somewhere outside of that stereotype. Mm-hmm. And so then we feel like we're the weird ones, or, yeah. you know, the kid that feels like, oh, I'm not the right kind of boy, or I'm not the right kind of girl. I don't do this very well, or I'm not, I'm not good at, like for boys, I'm not good at being athletic, and I'm not kind of tough and strong. And so for all of those other kids that don't fit that exact kind of perfect image, those kids then end up feeling less than. Yeah. Um, and when reality is, that's most kids. Most of us don't fit the exact kind of prototype. Right. Um, but that's just kind of normal variation. It's not that we're not um, normal in some way. Oh, it's so it's such a subtle thing, huh? Because, I mean, not to like throw me out there, but I've been watching Downton Abbey. Yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> everyone's looking at me with terror because they've, they've been, they've, they can't see beyond pink and blue. <laughs> but here's the problem. I, I mean, in the 1900s, women weren't supposed to pretty much do anything but sit there and, you know, tighten right. up their corset. Right. And I I sat there and I watched this and I think, are you kidding me? You can't even, you can't even do that. You can't drive a car. You can't. And I think of how far we've come, except then now this is almost what you're discussing is just this subtle, it's, all, it's just a subtle paradigm. It is. And so that's also, you know, it's like things are so much better than they used to be. Yeah. So much better in the U.S. than they are in many other places. Um, but now we're at the point where it is the subtle stuff, which I think, you know, it's that it's the ubiquitous stuff. You know, they always right. say that the fish doesn't notice the water because it's swimming in it. I think that's kind of where we are with gender. It's so ubiquitous that we don't even really question some of the things that we do. I think people don't question when kindergarten teachers say, good morning, boys and girls. Yeah. I think we don't question it. But, you know, the analogy we often draw is, well, think about it with race. <laughs> we don't do that with race. We right. do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Can you imagine how offensive that would be? <laughs> right. And like we recognize that we would never call that out in public like that. <laughs> um, and so why do we think that gender is more out of an you know, kind of an acceptable way to constantly, I mean, clearly there's differences between boys sure. and girls, but do we constantly need to focus on what that difference is? Or we can't we just kind of focus on kids being unique individuals? Yeah. I mean, really, good morning, unique individuals. 
<laughs> it, 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 part of it is it's not nearly as catchy. It's not as catchy, but you can also see kind of the traditionalists saying, "Hold it! Now you're just going crazy because you know it's a binary system, except it's not. I mean, not. nobody. Right. I mean, there's people that don't. They're in the body of a man, but they feel like a woman, and they, I mean, it's it's not binary. It's not, and and there's lots of you know kind of reports from just even out of um, hospitals where even we're born not binary. Doctors, right. there's a lot of people that are called, you know, intersex that doctors have to make right. a decision even when they're born. So the idea that we come into these two neat categories just really doesn't hold up. Yeah, we that's and I think that's why we need more discussion about this so that, mm-hmm. I mean, you can still have traditional values and still believe there's incredible power in women in a way that there might not be in a man and in power in man in a man way and whatever. You can go that way. You, I mm-hmm. believe that. And we can still see everyone as powerful, I'd say, children of God, just good, good people. Yeah, because I do think we see, I mean, cause what we see is when we focus too much on kind of stereotypical um, ways in which boys and girls differ, it leads to also then problems, right? So it is, it's not just that we can all be different. The problem is, for example, with boys, we people often assume, well, boys are just naturally aggressive, and they're right. just rough and tumble naturally. Well, then what happens is if we raise boys to kind of just assume that aggression is okay, and we never let them talk about when they feel sad, which we know that they do, but we kind of funnel it all into aggression because every toy we give them is a gun, and every video game they play with has a gun. Yeah. Um, and we say, don't talk about your feelings, don't talk about your emotions, but here's a gun to play with. Be aggressive. <laughs> Be aggressive. And then what happens is they come into adolescence and adulthood, and we see boys having much higher rates of um, physical aggression. Oh, yeah. And that leads to all sorts of damages. Um, For girls, the flip side is focusing on, oh, you're so pretty. Look at how pretty you are. And then we see such a media culture of very thin, unattainable bodies. And so one of the biggest differences we see between men and women is girls' body image. Mm. So girls start dieting by the time they're nine, data shows. Um, By middle school, most girls are unhappy with their bodies. And so you see high rates of things like eating disorders among girls because of this real emphasis on how you look to others. There can be an appreciation of the diversity of boys and girls, but a lot of this focus on gender really leads to some... um, Some painful side stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as a child that I'm a boy supposed to be aggressive, the most traumatic day of my life was when they wanted me to go deer hunting. And I'm like, I am not going to, A, shoot that gun, or B, kill a deer. And I stayed up all night fretting. But so the whole time I'm wondering, am I not man enough? Am I not man enough? I mean, I guess I could kill a deer, but I don't want to kill a deer. So it's – and it's – there's so many, you know, iterations of this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Christia Brown, author of the book Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue, How to Raise Your Kids Free of Gender Stereotypes. We'll take a break. Be right back. Stick with us. Friends, the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about uh, your children and how to raise your children uh, free of gender stereotypes. The book we're talking about is Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue, How to Raise Your Kids Free of Gender Stereotypes by Dr. Christia Brown. And uh, she is a uh, associate professor of developmental psychology at University of Kentucky. 
and is helping us understand the impact of how we uh, how we raise our kids and to try to do it really without without uh, without trying to bias them. Is that the basic gist of this, Christia? I think it is. I mean, I think really the message is just treat gender as kind of irrelevant as things like height, right? Focus on individual kids. Gender is there. It's um, a characteristic of kids. It's typically unchangeable. Um, but it's not really going to determine much about what my individual child is like. Yeah. Should should because that's interesting. Like because uh, th- there are differences, and we've talked about some. Mm-hmm. But women are more likely, statistically, I guess, to get um, anxiety. Men right. more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. It would tell us that there's something different about maybe how our brains work or the chemistry or something. However, you're saying what? Don't don't think of it just as as a gender issue. I do. I think that. I mean, there are some differences, but what's tricky is that the differences are not very big. They're different at kind of the mean level. So at the group level, they're, you know, they're there, but they don't do much to predict an individual's behaviors or traits or abilities. And so when it comes to actually parenting individuals, knowing their gender doesn't tell you very much. I mean, it might tell you things if you're a demographer or you're someone looking at right. public policy and you're looking at these broad kind of categories. But if you're actually interacting with an individual as a teacher or if you're a parent interacting with your individual kids, knowing the gender actually doesn't tell you very much about what your child is like. Yeah, what your, uh, especially and- what your child is like. Exactly. Um, and so there you really have to pay attention to what are, what abilities is my child showing and really take away any preconceived notions you have about, well, this is what boys are like or this is what girls are like. Mm. That's I, I love it that way because I was a child raised by four women um, <laughs> and uh, and the baby of the family, spoiled rotten. But I feel like I was socialized um, probably in a more female way. My sisters were constantly talking, it felt like to me, and their their conversations to me always seemed like they weren't ever trying to fix anything. So, right. and, and I kind of see that now, but when I was a child, I was always frustrated by why are we saying, why are we having this conversation again? I thought we had this one. Let's not, let's not talk about this again. And I'm, and I'm watching all of this. And anyway, so as I got older, I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm probably communicate a little bit more um, like my sisters. Now, that may not be gender. That may just be my sisters. Right. And I think that's what you see is that you that sometimes you just have girls that are more talkative. You know, for example, I'm much more talkative than my husband is, for example. Um, But I'm also much less talkative than a lot of other women. Um, And so it's really think of it as individual differences and not group differences, because the group differences, the different, you know, statistically, they aren't very big. Um, And if you hold up the group difference as kind of the standard for your child, when they don't meet the difference, when they don't meet the group standard, it's going to impact them. Right. And that's where you really see. I mean, and you see that, you know, particularly with boys. For boys, you know, there's lots of talk a lot of times about um, how stereotypes really harm girls. I think they get a little bit more attention sometimes in this conversation. But boys, actually, we see have a much more rigid definition of what they're supposed to be like, Um, kind of what you're supposed to be to be that kind of ideal boy is really pretty narrow. And boys get a lot of teasing at school if they're not the kind of very stereotypical type of boy. 
their kind of options that they're given are much more rigid than they are for girls. You know, girls are allowed to be tomboys, and that's pretty accepted. Um, there's not an equivalent, really, for boys. Right, right. Um, and so for boys, there is this real restrictive kind of definition of you're supposed to be like this. And if they're, and the reality is a lot of boys aren't. Um, and so parents really have to be kind of paying attention to what's their son actually like, because there's a lot of boys that aren't athletic, and there's a lot of boys that aren't aggressive, and there's a lot of boys that are good at poetry and writing and reading and all those things that aren't associated with being boys. Right. Um, and we have to really pay attention to them, um, because we know that they're going to get a lot more bullying, for example, by the time they hit middle school. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of social repercussions for them it, that it, often don't get discussed. And it seems like as parents, um, uh, one point I think that's that's important is that we we may actually default to the stereotype instead of doing the hard work of actually trying to understand our child. We do. And I think it's tricky because, you know, we start when they're just babies, you know, most parents. Um, and when they're babies, they really don't do very much. They just kind of lay there and sleep and cry and eat. And that's about it. Um, and so often what, what then influences what we do is our preconceived notion of what a boy is going to be like. I mean, I think there's a reason the first question parents always get is, oh, are you having a boy or a girl? Right. We assume that's going to tell us something <laughs> about what that child is like. And so when they're just this infant, often we then start the path towards being kind of stereotypical because we don't have any other information. We don't know what their personality is. We don't know what their abilities and traits are going to be. And so what happens is we just buy girls dolls, and we don't buy the baby dolls for our sons, even though we know that boys are interested in dolls until they hit about three. Mm. Um, And so we start those stereotypical kind of paths early on. And then by the time kids get to be three, four, five, and six, they look more stereotypical, but that's because that's what we were kind of leading them on the path. That's what we were hoping for. (laughs) And then then again, and then there's just still the person. I mean, I always look at, um, like, we think that, uh, you know, every female would want to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom, you know, kind of would want to do that or, you know, should do that. And I think sometimes I wonder... What about the woman that really, truly doesn't and and doesn't relate and and it can't do it and can't stand it? Or, I mean, in anything we do, um, there's there's always going to be people that don't do that. Right, and I think that there's also a lot of men that would actually love, love to, be to. A stay at home um, parents, and so that there is a lot of variation. And some, yeah, some moms are better moms when they can go to work. Mm-hmm. And then they can come home and be better moms then. And some have to, but there's a stereotype that they shouldn't because right. you, you you don't love your children. So there's just I, some of this, I think, is just we need to almost judge less, open up more and not make it about our gender, our sexuality as much as we do. Yeah, you know, I, I do think an analogy is with height. You know, I think I'm a pretty short adult. <laughs> um, and so my height does determine some things about me. You know, I just got finished flying, and I have to have help getting my suitcase in the overhead because mm. I'm about 5'2", so I'm on the short end, even for women. Um, I'm not going to become a big basketball star. You know, there's I need a step stool to get the top of the cabinets. There are some things that my height does determine about me. It that's about it, though. It doesn't determine a whole lot of other things about my personality or what I might like to do or be interested in. Yeah. I think gender's kind of that. It does determine some things. You know, it determined that I'm the one that had the children in my family. I'm the one that, you know, does, it determines some things biologically that are about me. Um, but it doesn't determine nearly as 
much as society likes to think it does. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the power of um, of just opening up a little bit, opening up mm-hmm. our our minds, and at least having the discussions as well. Right. What would you say uh, if if we were going to kind of we have about a minute and narrow it down to like one thing? What's one thing? parents can do, grandparents can do with their grandchildren to really make sure that we, we're helping our children focus on their specific strengths instead of just gender, um, what, what would we do? I think one is go back to kind of basics and think about what are traits I want to foster in any kid, right? Every kid should be empathetic and nurturing. That's just a great human trait. So therefore, toys should focus on that. Boys, dolls are good. Girls, dolls are good because that fosters a trait that's important. Everyone should be good at math and hand-eye coordination and spatial skills, boys and girls. So we should really foster that in both. You know, all kids should have things like Legos and play with balls and things like that. Because if we really focus on what are the important traits just in, that we want in humans, that really shouldn't differ across men and women. Right. So we shouldn't make it differ across our sons and our daughters. Yeah. No, I love that. And, and, then, and then, too, if we're focusing on that, we're more likely to actually attain that. Right. Because I think all, you know, the big thing is all toys are educational. All media is educational. They may, you may not intend for kids to learn from it, but they are yeah. learning from it. Um, and so we've got to really make sure that we're teaching the things that we want our kids to really be learning. Exactly. Dr. Christia Brown, thank you so much uh, for being with us. And keep up the great work there on, uh, you know, understanding our parenting and gender differences. Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue, How to Raise Your Kids, Free of Gender Stereotypes. Uh, That's the name of the book. We'll take a break. Be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you may have noticed that uh, beards are becoming more and more popular uh, around the country, around the world. We're here at Brigham Young University where on campus we have a unique policy where men need to be clean-shaven at all times. And uh, it seems strange to other college-age kids because, you know, they are what they are. But we've uh, done a little research. Leanna Tan, one of our producers, has gone out to try to figure out what is the impact about having a beard or not. Is it hype or is it real? Who's got a beard that's long and white? Santa's got a beard that's long and white. Who comes around on a special... Is it Christmas in July this year? Don't get me wrong, I am all for Christmas any time of the year, but it seems like Old St. Nick might be the inspiration for this summer's fashion trends, which can never be a good sign. It would seem like with the weather warming up, guys might take the opportunity to shave off all that hot, itchy facial hair. But even with Christmas still six months away, I guess Kris Kringle isn't the only one preparing for the holidays. Okay, have you ever heard the word pognophobe? Yeah, me neither. But apparently, a pognophobe is someone who fears beards. Okay, you might be thinking, that's crazy to fear facial hair. But listen to this. In the BBC News article, Are Beards Good for Your Health? They managed to grow over 100 different bacteria from beard samples and said beards could potentially harbor unpleasant bugs. Now that is scary. But it did also say that one of the bacteria they found in beards appears to be producing some novel form of antibiotic. That is really the only good thing I can think of that comes from beards. And I think I'd take the disease over a bacteria-breeding beard. I am definitely a huge fan of the clean-shaven look, 
Sometimes a five o'clock shadow can make a guy look really suave, but that's like a special case. I just think that a clean shave makes you look like you're very put together. But I quickly found out that I am not the only one with an opinion on this subject. What's your name? Sage Smiley. David Boyle. I'm Aaron. Jacob Wisner. I'm here with Zachary Ireland. Benjamin Waston. Mallory Stack. Sadie. My name is Spencer. Why do men have beards? It's a really big fad right now. It's like manly, it's really masculine. It was very inconvenient to shave it off in the forest. Why were you in the forest? I was planting trees. What? Definitely gave me more respect from my co-workers. Girls, for some reason, are really into beards right now. Beards often help guys with baby faces. It's kind of like a rite of passage. It makes me look buff. It makes me look more mature, more intelligent. Do you think it makes you look more jolly? Ho, ho, ho! Is this just funny for everyone? This is a real thing. Can everyone pull off a beard? No. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> there are very few people that can actually pull off a good beard. Men with Boys can pull off a beard. What's your ideal beard? Short and well groomed. <laughs> a quarter of an inch. Like half an inch? Like a quarter of an inch. It's not like the curly ends things. No one likes that. That's gross. I don't want it to be poofy. Like it has to be like shaved, like the right shape. Cause like if the top of the cheeks have like too many hairs on them, then it looks weird. It has like, has that nice line. Generally a full beard is preferable. Mustaches are a no-go. Um, mustaches look awful. Why do you love beards? I honestly don't know. But I just love them. What about a beard is attractive? It's like something about like embracing like natural manliness. People think they're like kind of scratchy and stuff, but like you like stroke the right way. You know, they actually can be pretty soft. I think like the last four, maybe more guys that I've kissed have had beards. It's like a thing. I just love beards. <laughs> well, I read a article that said they can contract like gross germy things food particles nasty stuff does that sway your decision at all when i learned about all the germs that go into it i'm like okay that's disgusting if he has a really nasty beard then it's probably a nasty person that i don't want to be around what else goes into the maintenance of a beard there are certain stages of a beard the the scruff stage there's the stage of the beard where it like almost clings to your face but it, it's not poofy, right? And then there's when it leaves the face and starts becoming springy. Like weeks two to four, it's like super scratchy. It was like constant itchy pain. It takes effort. You have to wash it like you wash your hair. You can brush it. You can put oils and conditioners into it. No, and then you trim it too. It adds like two minutes to your daily routine. At least five minutes looking at it in the mirror daily, just for self-confidence reasons for the beard's growth. Uh, I didn't do anything. I barely showered, actually, so <laughs> I was living in the woods. Are there any um, drawbacks to having a beard? Well, it's hard to stay single. Just ladies always coming at me. You go through more shampoo. Some people, their beards get prickly. Yeah, the hair, hair in the mouth is probably the greatest danger. What does it feel like to have a beard? It feels like having a kitten on your face. Have you ever dated somebody with a beard? I have. How was it? Scratchy. I don't, didn't like it. I don't know, it just looks grungy. Uh, if you've never experienced one, you love them, but as soon as you have dated someone who has a beard, you hate them. <laughs> when you <laughs> hug someone, for example, it's like, I'm taller than most people, so it's just like this like puffball next to their head. So do you like being clean shaven more? Yeah, yeah, I do. The benefit is that it's easier to look 
put together. A lot of guys with beards like act like you're only a manly man if you have a beard. So there's no reason to judge a man by his beard. What advice do you have for men who want to grow beards? That they should just skip it. Just not grow a beard. Looks so much better without one. I definitely have to agree. Remember that manliness is not defined by the length of your facial hair. Call me a pognophobe, but I say, unless you live in the North Pole and have eight tiny reindeer, let your chin see the sun like this summer and enjoy the freedom of a freshly shaven face. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side. Top of the morning to you. Man, hour number three. This is the 15th hour of the week. But who's counting? You. Yes, I am. Actually, it's the 14th hour because we were cut short. Hey, uh, we got a great show for you today. Um, because it's Friday, we like to you know wrap up with a little movies preview. Rod Gustafson will be joining us. We're going to play some games, maybe a little data dump, a little, uh, what do we call it, a flush, news flush. A news flush. Uh, this just in also some some more names. The Seven Dwarfs, they found a list of some other names of dwarfs. And we're going to get into the names. Some of them you wouldn't believe hmm. what they were proposing. Floyd? No. Bernie? Nope. Huh. Macbeth? No. You guys can keep guessing, but you'll never get it. Horace? No. Okay. Matt? Yes. No. We will get to all of those. Plus, BYU Sports Nation, they'll be joining us in about, a, I don't know, 40 minutes or so to find out what's coming up on their show. And then we're going to wrap it up. A little kumbaya. Leave you with a great salute, traditional you know, send-off for the 4th of July. Hmm? I don't know. you got to go put that together this hour. Okay. <laughs> what but are first, we talking about? Let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. What's up, Caitlin? Hey, Matt. Well, just in, Attorney General Loretta Lynch will accept the FBI's recommendations about whether or not to prosecute Hillary Clinton over her use of a personal email server during her time as Secretary of State. The Justice Department will announce that today. Lynch technically has the power to overrule whatever decisions career prosecutors and the FBI director make about how the case should proceed, but has agreed to let the decision stand. NBC News updated their presidential battleground map this morning. The results show that Hillary Clinton maintains her advantage, having 255 electoral votes in her column to Donald Trump's 190. 93 are in toss-up still. Back in May, it was Clinton that was at 253 and Trump at 190, toss-up of 95. So the big changes come from two months ago, where Florida has moved from toss-up to leaning Democrat, Nevada and Pennsylvania from leaning Democrat to toss-up, Utah from likely GOP to lean GOP, Mississippi and Montana from lean GOP to likely GOP, and New Jersey from lean Democrat to likely Democrat. Two grandchildren, 12 and 7 years old, led police in Texas on a chase that one witness pegged at around 100 miles per hour, reported yesterday. Police in and near Conroe, a town north of Houston, 
initially believed the incident was a case of a stolen car and kidnapping, but it turned out the girls took their grandmother's car out for a joyride. A joyride? The grandmother reported the missing car to the police. The chase began at around 5.30 p.m. local time after a Conroe officer tried to pull the car over, and the driver, who turned out to be the 12-year-old, took off. The pursuit spanned 11 miles. No one was hurt in the chase, but ended when the 12-year-old driver pulled over in a high school in nearby Montgomery. And Matt, to end your news broadcast for the week, whatever the final score on Friday night, it'll be a win for women everywhere. Minor League Baseball's independent team, the Sonoma Stompers, will make history when two women take the field against the San Rafael Pacifics tonight. The team's starting lineup will include Kelsey Whitmore, a 17-year-old outfielder and pitcher, and 25-year-old pitcher and infielder Stacey Piagno. That'll make the Stompers the first co-ed professional baseball team since the 1950s to feature more than one female player at the same time. Both are set to play for Team USA in September's Women's Baseball World Cup. Sweet! World Baseball. Female Baseball. It's picking up. Do, do women's arms work that way? I thought they only worked under No, him. that was last hour. Oh, I'm so, I just... Female stereotypes. I of know, course sorry. women can... They can swing a golf club. They really? can swing a bat. Wow. When did this happen? Uh, I think I think it always could happen. Okay. I've been trying to get on the women's softball team for years, but... Yeah. They've told me I can't do it. Yeah. You'd have to be on the men's softball team. Is there a men's softball team? Yeah. You'd have to ask. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then they'd have to qualify you first. By the way, go, really? Last hour, know. we had a bunch of phone calls because we did a we did a bit on beards. Yeah. And? And in the bit, uh, Ben was interviewed. Ah. About you know how he likes to grow a beard. He did this this incredible yeah, he thing spoke about from experience. Yeah, three stages of beard growing. Yeah, just so everybody knows. Just I think I just feel like we just need to disclose fully. Just clear the air. Get it. Get the truth out there. Ben's never grown a beard in his life. No ben way. hasn't even grown a facial hair in his life. Define a beard. Hair <laughs> follicles growing out of your face, all over. Then I've totally grown a beard. Okay. Well, you're, the peach fuzz you've had since birth oh. doesn't count. Somebody's in denial. Yeah. He, he's the guy that, that has like the, the razor and the shaving cream just so he can act like he shaves, you <laughs> right. know, like dad does. Yeah. yeah. My roommates took the razors, like the yeah. plates out it's of the razor. It's just a piece of plastic. But, but it, it still works. Yeah, so. it's fine. It takes all of the shaving cream off my it's face. Like when parents give their kid the old cell phone to play with, yeah. it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, mine used to just give me I gave, know, like, old the, weapons. I gave the best advice out of anybody on that interview. Yeah, and the fact was you looked it all up because yeah. you haven't grown. If it. you can't do, teach. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> hey, did you hear about this Canadian woman? Um, man, what a what a lifesaver this one is. Uh-huh. She, um, a, a vegan Canadian woman, bought a lobster from a local grocery store in order oh, to send yeah. it Almost 900 miles away, so it could be set free. Christine uh, Luhead mm. of Ontario discovered the lobster, which she named Lobby Joe. Lobby Joe. And she found him at the local grocery store. We bought him for 20 bucks. I took him home and set up a tank. Then we tried to figure out how to return him home again. Where does she live? Ontario. Yeah, Go she's on. in Ontario. Yeah. Uh, Luhead learned that the lobster was likely from Nova Scotia. Wow. By the way. Likely. Yeah, she doesn't know. She doesn't know, but 
She probably just found out who the supplier was. She assumed was. It's, it's from Nova Scotia because that's yeah. where all the little – that's where lobby, uh, many Lobby Joes come from, Nova Scotia. Lobby Joes. And uh, she found um, a mail service that would uh, ship live animals. She then um, reached out to Facebook group of Vegans United um, where she found Beth Kent who was willing to set the lobster free up in Nova Scotia. <laughs> Lou had drove the, drove the lobster six hours to the UPS store in Winnipeg, paid $225 to have the lobster shipped. The lobster was packaged in styrofoam box, filled with newspaper before being sent 892 miles to Nova Scotia to be set free. And then, beautifully, or I guess tragically, when Beth Kent opened the box, guess what happened? Anything? Dead lobster. Really? No, I made that up. Oh, okay. Um, so there's only a few choices that could have happened. Yeah. Right? One, they open it up, dead lobster. Right. Which would have been tragic. But Absolutely. you know what? Great for dinner, but not for Beth. <laughs> They're all vegans, though. I know. Uh, the second option, though, would just be that the minute they plop the cute little uh, lobby Joe mm-hmm. into the water. Uh-oh. Yeah. Wouldn't that be... <gasps> No, Lobby Joe. All that effort. And Swim, they, Lobby Joe. Oh, boy, they should have unlocked your pincers. And nature takes his... Yeah, and they put him in and he's still got <laughs> he's the still rubber, got bands rubber bands on, him, yeah. on his pincers. Ah! Uh, you know, that. so he could be killed. Or he um, could have survived it all, floated to the bottom of the sea, mm-hmm. which is what happened. And we have video of him landing at the bottom of the sea where he became an entertainer and opened up a nightclub act. Sebastian. Yep. No more Lobby Joe. He's call me Sebastian. He's entertaining. He's talking about life up on the up on Earth, up on the land. Counseling a mermaid. Counseling a mermaid. Mm. He's got a bass section. He's got a. Yep. See, and if every person would free one lobster, change the world. You gotta really. It, that is some seriously cool commitment. Oh yeah, I mean for the for the the two, I think women involved. That's a big deal. They're, they just saved a lobster to be eaten by whatever eats lobsters naturally. Yeah. Well, and then there's for me because um, I don't know if you know this map, but I tend to take cynical looks at things. What? Y- you save one, but how many are pulled out of the ocean for consumption? Yeah, but. Don't think Thousands. of it that way. Think of think of what Lobby Joe. Think of Lobby Joe right now. What does he think? <laughs> not probably not much. What about Lobby Joe's children? It's a lobster. He's a, he feeds at the bottom of the ocean. In, in a way, she's fueling the lobster industry because she paid for the lobster and then put he'll it back. For, he'll just be recaught. I mean, <laughs> thank you, thank you, vegans across America. <laughs> Don't see you guys are so cynical. Sorry, that is. That's negative. Uh, we also – I've done um, some incredible research and found uh, some an update, let's call it. You all remember the, the movie um, The Seven Dwarfs, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs? Yeah. I, I think we need another trigger warning for this nope. one. Why? Be little people. Okay, yeah. So it was a movie. Uh, we're not trying to make fun of little people or anything like that. It's just these were – these – in the movie, they needed names for the seven dwarfs, and they needed to like brainstorm a bunch of names. And they ended up pool, having a pool of around 50 names. Mm. And then they narrowed it down in the movie to Doc, 
grumpy, happy, sleepy, bashful, sneezy, and dopey. Manny, Mo, and Mac. Okay. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Which also, by the way, that happens to be my entire production team. There you go. Right there. I won't tell you who Sleepy is, I'm but grumpy. he's sitting across from me. Yeah. Um, but here we go. They have some new names. These were ultimately rejected. Hmm. This is truly from their list. And there was a bunch of drawings made of all of them. Oh, and nice. you can buy the drawings, 400 pieces that total five, so for 500 um, huh. pounds. Or 500,000 pounds. Okay. So it's expensive. Here are some of the names that didn't make it, and you see if you can figure out why. There was um, Jumpy. Man, that guy's jumpy. <laughs> Deffy. Deffy? Deffy. That's a little insulting. Yeah, on that, that, yeah, back in the day, they used to insult everybody. Right. Dizzy. Okay, yeah. Hickey. I don't even like want to hiccups? know. I, hiccups? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Sounds a little hickey to me. Yeah. <laughs> Wheezy. Which, by the way, eventually was on the Jeffersons. That was Wheezy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wheezy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you sound Wheezy. Baldy. <laughs> Gabby. Yikes. Nifty. Nifty? This one reminded me of Ben. Sniffy. Sniffy? Yeah. Wow, that's a little... Swift. Okay. Lazy. Puffy. Stuffy. Tubby. Tubby. Shorty. And my favorite, Burpee. Burpee Dwarf. Huh. <laughs> Burpee. That would have made a whole different movie. Why don't Burpee? Why don't you Hickey and Wheezy go down to the health department and figure out what your problems are? You could team them up with with whatever their powers are. You know, Burpee, Hickey. Oh, here we go. And you could you could the sum is greater than the parts, and it could be a one. It'd be like a World of Warcraft game, except Alert nerd. What? Why are you ruining no, such I'm, a? Uh, this is just. This isn't. This okay. doesn't have to go to superhero dumb. These are just. These are just saying the combination of superpowers would make for an interesting game. Hey, um, Sorry. Yeah, you could just see the superhero team of Dizzy, Hickey, Wheezy, and uh, Lazy. There you go. What's your superpower? Um, lazy boy chairs. I, can, uh, I, I, I just lay there all day. I am incredibly lazy. That's my superhero <laughs> and power. Tubby, I mean, these seriously offensive. But it also makes you see that... Happy was a very positive one there. That's why that's why they made the list. Hmm. Bashful, mm-hmm. sneezy, and dopey. <laughs> dopey. Okay. Anyway, this a little update for you. So here's what we got going on. We will take a break. Come back, visit our good buddy um, Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, and be talking about. The Legend of Tarzan, which, you know, it's it's uh, it's an interesting review. I hear it looks so exciting. We're going to see if it adds up to all that excitement. Then I guess we're going to play a game and a little uh, little news news flush. We call it. We're going to get rid of some of our news stories, run through a bunch of those. Then visit our good brethren down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. Wrapping it up. Before the big 4th of July holiday, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's Friday, which means it's time to uh, do a little movie review. Who better to help us with that? Then Rod Gustafson from ParentPreviews.com. 
which is an organization that is uh, trying to do their best to, as film critics to, to look at the movies, but to look at them from a parent's perspective, give us as parents some insight in uh, you know what our children might want to watch out for, what movies they you know they might enjoy, what they might not enjoy. And uh, we always enjoy having uh, Rod on the show to walk us through his movies. Rod, thanks for being with us. No, you're welcome, Matt. Today we're taking on The Legend of Tarzan, huh? Yes, yes. I wish I could do the Carol Burnett Tarzan call. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. I remember I, I do, too. Burnett those were good days. Oh, those were. Those were. Yeah, Legend of Tarzan. You know, the first thing I'm going to tell parents is, if you think Tarzan movie is the first thing that comes to your mind is a Disney animation with that lovely Phil Collins soundtrack. Book. Oh, yeah. I, I just love some of the music in that movie. And uh, and if that's what you're thinking about, push the delete button. Oh. Because this, is a, this is a different Tarzan. Now, not totally bad, but definitely this isn't something I'd pack the eight-year-olds up to go see this one is it's live action and when they say live action i suspect that 70 percent of what i'm seeing on the screen is actually coming out of a computer but um the, the the line between live action and computer generated is getting very blurry these days uh but this one is a much more uh it's a much more serious telling of tarzan and uh, it takes place in the late 1800s and that's during the time when uh, King Leopold II of Belgium actually owned the Congo. He, uh, it was his baby. It wasn't even a government entity. And uh, he was uh, basically raping and pillaging the land for whatever he could get out of it. And, and according to this movie, which, of course, do not take this as a historical document, even though it's set within a historical context, uh, the king is bankrupt. He's going massively into debt. And he hears that there's a big stash of diamonds in the Congo that he wants to get a hold of so he can pay off his debts. So he, sing, he sends an envoy there, a guy by the name of Leon Rom, uh, who's really the bad guy of the movie, played by Christoph Waltz. And he's dressed, he kind of looks like a hitman on an African safari. I don't know how else to describe it. And he goes over there and he works a deal with a local chief of a, of a tribe where these diamonds are located, and the chief says, if you want the diamonds, bring me Tarzan, because there's a little bit of backstory there that I, I won't go into all the details, but the chief has a, has a, he, he, there's a revenge, a vengeful act there that he wants to take place, and he wants Tarzan delivered to him. So now this means that, that the uh, Leon Rom guy who's there because the king sent him, his real mission is to go get Tarzan. So if you want to, if you want to, try and attract somebody like Tarzan to trap him. What do you do? You need some bait. Well, the best bait would be Jane, who is Tarzan's <laughs> wife. And uh, so he goes and kidnaps Jane. And of course, that makes Tarzan just a little bit more than angry, and he comes running. Now, what's interesting about this Tarzan movie, Matt, is that I have I've never read the original Tarzan, you know, the original writings of Edgar Rice Burroughs. But um, I have heard from many sources that Tarzan is the Tarzan what we associate with the movies is the Tarzan that came out in the early 1930s uh, back in the black and white movie days and whatnot. And uh, that really isn't an accurate representation of the character that Edgar Rice Burroughs had, had put together, who was a very articulate man who could speak like 10 different languages and everything else. And 
And this Tarzan, they do try and incorporate that in there. We meet Tarzan, who is actually Lord Greystoke, is his, it's his official name. And we meet him in England at the beginning of the movie, and he's this very handsome and very knowledgeable and intellectual guy. And he doesn't want to go back to Africa because of things that happened there in his childhood. But he goes back um, as part of this mission of trying to help the Congo. And the other thing that is going on in this movie is the Congo is in the midst of the slave trade. And so that's another thing that's happening, which has historical fact to it. And so Tarzan is really there in a way to try and and protect the animals and to protect the indigenous people as well who are being taken advantage of by the Belgians. So all of this kind of monster and somewhat complex plot is included in this film. But uh, it it actually has, it it is a PG-13 movie. There are some good reasons why parents may want to reconsider for younger children. And it's high, high energy, I'm assuming, major action. Yes. An activity. Yes, absolutely. yes, yes. This is an this is an action film. Uh, that uh, yeah, there are a lot of scenes of battle. In fact, I was surprised at the intensity of the violence. Now, when I say the intensity of the violence, it, it's quite you know, it's not a whole lot of blood. It's quite sanitized. There's not a lot of blood and tissue detail, as we say. But there are a lot of people that get slaughtered on the screen using guns and swords and wow. spears and all that type of stuff. And many perilous moments. And, and the opening scene it kind of shows the backstory of Tarzan's family when he was a little baby and, and a bunch of apes. Uh, and he was the result of a shipwreck. His parents were shipwrecked on the island. And his mother dies from an illness. And then his father is basically attacked, by, attacked and killed by a group of apes who then find the baby and a female ape rescues the baby that scene alone which is in the opening minutes of the movie for young children could be very terrifying so there are many moments of peril in this movie that um if you got you know younger children i would be really careful approaching this one i think the pg-13 rating is quite accurate on it um there is also a couple of moments of uh there's one moment of sensuality, as we say, a sexual interlude between a, a husband and wife, Tarzan and Jane. We don't see any details, but it is a sexual moment, and uh, a couple of other sexual innuendos in the movie as well. And and your overall grade was what, then, for the show? B minus. We're right on the line on this one. You know, if, if, uh, if you've got teens that are looking for an action film and you're willing to overlook the the brief moments of sexual content, which really, I mean, our sexual content to be minus. This isn't really heady stuff, but uh, it is there. Um, but, it, you know, for most parents, I think the violence is probably going to be the biggest issue. So, you know, a, a mild recommendation for teens and over. It is a fun adventure. The one thing I will say about the movie, it sounded quite negative. It really, it kept to me, it's quite compelling to watch. It's an interesting story. I think I'm getting a little tired of all the... Uh, comic book adventures with the big battle at the end. This one's actually got a little more intrigue and plot to it. It's got some good performances. The uh, the animals are just astounding. Again, all computer-generated, I'm assuming at least. I, I, I don't know for sure, but it's getting very difficult to tell when you're looking at a real animal in the movies and when you're looking oh, at wow. a computer-generated one. But yeah, yeah, some amazing, amazing stuff happening on the screen visually and actually a pretty good story. 
but parents, you know, be prepared to talk about things like genocide and yeah. slave trade and, and colonialization and all of those things are, are big, important topics that are within this film. Well, and again, Rod, that's what I love about uh, parent previews is when you go, I can go find the Tarzan movie and then I can scroll down and, and see your grades. I can see why you graded it like a D on, plus on violence, but I can figure it out. And then I can go down and find out about, um, you know, the parent's guide, what I could talk to my kids about. You yeah. know, it's I think that's what could take movies to the next level is instead of just sending our kids to the movies, let's actually interact with them, teach, learn, grow together. Right, right. And this film actually does bring up some very interesting historical points about the involvement of Europe within Africa during the, during the, uh, the Victorian era, era in the late 1800s. And uh, yeah, those could be some very interesting talking points. Rod, great job again, my friend. Keep up the great work there at uh, parentpreviews.com. Thank you, Matt. You have a great Fourth of July weekend. And we will, and we're, maybe we're, it might involve Tarzan, by the way. Yeah, and we're celebrating Canada Day today too. So we'll Sweet. be thinking about you. Happy Canada Day. Take care. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and uh, do a little, uh, you know, have a little fun, a little game time, a little flush time as well. Getting ready for BYU Sports Nation that'll be also coming up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, whenever we have a little extra time on Friday, we like to uh, we like to do what we call it's it's just a fun little news game called the Flush. It almost sounds like a poker game, but instead, it just involves a toilet. And what we do, very simply, I give a news story. Terry gives a news story. In this case, we will let Terry give the news story first, and then we will flush it. If it's flushable, we flush it. If it's not flushable, we keep it. <laughs> not flushable. <laughs> we'll see. Is your story worth flushing or not? Most of these are. Good. That's why they haven't come up yet. <laughs> okay. Hit it. All right. Uh, how much of the Olympics do you want to watch, Matt? One. One of the Olympics? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, two hours a week. So the family of NBC Universal, yeah, owned by Comcast, yeah. just so you know, uh, is uh, released their broadcast schedule for the 2016 Rio Olympics. Nearly every hour on NBC from August 5th to August 21st will be coverage of the Games. Every hour? More than 260 total hours. Oh, boy. Across all, all of the uh, channels... Uh, if it's 21, let's see, this is of, uh, across all of its channels, NBC Universal will have 6,755 hours of coverage, more than 1,200 more hours than it had for London. Wow. There's a more favorable time zone as uh, Rio is one time zone ahead of uh, Eastern time of the East Coast of the U.S. So it's kind of, you know, it works for the time that we're awake watching TV here in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. So what they're saying is. NBC's coverage will run from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. For, and then from 8 p.m. to midnight. And then from midnight to 1, they'll have like a, a recap show. But every night. 
every so pretty much night, every single day, all day long. They'll, they'll drop out for the evening news, and then <sighs> the entire evening, and then they'll have like a recap show at the end, and that's just on the main NBC broadcast channel. Well, what about what all about, the other cable channels? Will have more Olympics. Well, what about all the other shows that aired on NBC? That's during the summer. It's just sad. There's some people that want to watch. It'll be called a hiatus. Their rerun. Whatever game show they run. Or... Okay. Yeah, well, so you know what? Flush that Flush that noise, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, and I can't remember if we've talked about this, but I know we have off air. Um, so what do you do with your son that, you know, is getting a little older and you're getting older and your 48-year-old son's not married? Well. Well, you throw him out of the house. If you're from Coeur d'Alene, oh, Idaho. Oh, yeah. You... You put an ad in an Idaho newspaper seeking a wife for your 48-year-old son, which is what this father did. Arthur Brooks had planned to meet potential candidates at Coeur d'Alene Resort, but his son, uh, Baron Brooks, told the Spokesman Review on Sunday that its managers asked his father not to conduct interviews um, after getting barraged with media requests. Don't so, talk to the media. He put an ad. He was going to bring in all these ladies and uh, interview them one by one to eventually find a spouse for his son. The younger Brooks previously called um, the. It was, by the way, a nine hundred dollar ad. That's what it cost. Yes. And I saw the ad. It looked well put together. The for... younger Brooks thought it was embarrassing, but he <laughs> said, "You know, he's going to let his dad go forward." He says about twelve women from around the U.S. expressed interest in the ad. Arthur Brooks will interview them in coming weeks. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> it's because Brooks, you know, he wants a grandchild to carry on his name. So, by the way, it rem- reminded me a lot of Downton Abbey. Continuing with the marriage theme. Yeah. A man in Utah County here in the, in the Intermountain West in the state of Utah named Chris Severe wants to marry his computer. What? He says, this is not a game. This is not some kind of funny scenario. Yes, I love technology. He made his intentions known, went to the Utah County Clerk's Office to ask for a marriage license. In this day and age, nothing surprises me anymore, says the county clerk. I've been in this office long enough. I've seen lots of different things, but I just said, uh, no, we can't legally do that. Uh, Sorry, I can't legally marry you to an electronic device. That's crazy. Why? Are they just such good friends? Uh, No, it's a protest. Okay. Okay. Well, speaking speaking of creepy people, uh, have you heard about the reports of creepy men in black wandering around rural highways in Iowa? No. Listen to this. Strange figures mm. have been spotted walking through yards and on rural roads. They'll be standing at the side of the road and a truck will you'll drive by and there'll just be some ominous, scary looking man. Police in Iowa are asking for help from the public. Because they're receiving so many reports about men in black. Mm. Several reports of men dressed in black entering the roadway uh, around Muscatine County. And uh, what they, they say, they just, you know, sometimes they'll, they're actually walking across people's yards. But wow. they're also being sighted um, standing on the side of the road and cars will drive by and they just stare you down. Wow. And then they'll call the cops. And when the cops come back, they're not there. They just disappear? Men in Black. Now, the movie Men in Black? Yeah. What are they doing? They're hunting aliens. Yeah. Well, they're not really hunting. They're, they're looking for the ones that are breaking the rules because they're here. We know this. You don't need to go all nerd on it. Well, that's what the movie's about. You asked. I know. Alert I, nerd. I didn't think I'd get into this huge explanation. Sorry. Go ahead. 
I'm wondering if there's aliens in Iowa and these men in black are they're just checking their case officers they're just checking in making <laughs> sure that you know Floyd the alien from Rylon 7 is good Nerd alert <laughs> wow okay flush it uh, this is out of the Washington Post this morning. Yes. This, uh, this guy has found a new way to watch TV and it changes everything. What? How? He goes, you take four episodes, uh, they're four one hour episodes and you can fit them into an hour. Four one hour episodes. Of your favorite show. And it fits into one hour. One hour. Why would you do that? Because you're able to, to, to consume more faster. And. Don't you want to enjoy it? Well, they said it actually makes it better. When you, well, what they're doing is they're watching videos at 1.5 to two times the normal speed. Okay. So you get through it faster. But they say the comedies are funnier because the jokes come faster. I know, but you can only laugh so much so fast. But it, 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 it ups the enjoyment factor of that comedy. Holy cow. So they're doing this because they're able to save time. It goes by speeding up video. It's more than an efficiency hack. I quickly discovered that acceleration makes viewing more pleasurable. Sounds horrible. No? Okay. I just, you know, watch it faster. Man. Watch more TV. You could no. probably watch three Downton Abbeys. Yeah. In, a, in an hour. Yeah. Oh, if you put it that way. <laughs> I'm hooked. I so wanted to be a lord on a major estate. <sighs> I missed my I missed my era. Hey folks, we'll be right back. When we come back, we'll be visiting the good brethren down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, helping uh, you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we're going to be uh, shooting it down now to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Today, it's uh, Spencer Linton and Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Happy Canada Day. Happy happy Canada Day to you guys. Thank you very much. Happy uh, Fourth of July Friday pre-weekend party. Big weekend in Provo. Tim McGraw. Oh, yeah. Stadium of Fire. Is Faith Hill coming? Do we know? I don't know. I hope. I, mean, I would so. assume they wouldn't want to split up the family on like. No, a, you don't. No, this is a big holiday. Bring yes. faith. You know what? Have a barbecue. I I still married. I don't know, but Happily. I think I take Faith Hill with me everywhere. Good for them. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Honey, I really don't want to go. No, you're going. <laughs> I need a break from you. You will not leave me alone. Hey, did you guys survive Media Day? Yesterday was crazy. We did survive Media Day. I saw and, Jason. Uh, Jason, uh, when I was just sitting with him in the hall for like 10 minutes, he consumed about 80 ounces of water. <laughs> he drinks more water than anybody I know. I know. Yeah. And you know what? Never goes to the restroom. <laughs> that would not be true. But uh. He's a camel, folks. <laughs> hey, um, what's, what, what was your big takeaway from yesterday's media day? Anything no stand out? Big takeaway. Were you, were you in our pre-show mm. meeting? No. That may be a little tease for what the show is about. <gasps> yeah. You're kidding me. We will give you our big <laughs> takeaway from Media Day coming you're, up on BYU. You're Sports saving Day. it for your show? We are saving oh it for gosh. our show. Oh, my gosh. 
I want to discuss something that is almost as important as that. What? Mar- marriage. Marriage. And one of the comical double standards that exists, at least in marriages that involve myself or my friends. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Why is it, Matt Townsend, and you're a doctor yeah. on this stuff. I'm a professional. Why is it that women, if they so choose, mm-hmm. not saying they all do this, but right. if they so choose, they can say, hey, just so you know, I have this party on Wednesday night. Yeah. And and his husbands were like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. So we'll, You're taking the child? We'll take care of the kids. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, because you don't However, babysit. Right. If I was, if I were to say, hey, just so you know, I'm going to play golf on Wednesday, she would be like, excuse me? Yeah. I have to ask, is it okay if I go play golf on Wednesday? Why? Interesting. Why is that? Because you're a lazy scumbag. <laughs> Duh. And you would go golfing every day. Your wife will only go out to a party once every month for you church. Just, you just want a ton of brownie points. But it isn't All what's good for the everywhere. goose is good for the gander. Hey, by the way, don't bring up a goose because I've got a story right oh, here no. of a guy that punched a goose. <laughs> What? So, so don't. He, he full does it on. Explain in that what a gander is. Yes, a what gander. Is a gander? Well, it's two things. It's either I guess. Uh, I guess it's a bunch of geese and. Isn't it a gaggle? It's a gaggle of geese, but a gander would be the I guess the party they have. It's also <laughs> what happens when a guy punches a goose in the face, and ten go- geese all give it a gander, and they're like, "Did that guy just punch Floyd?" Yeah, Floyd. Why I love that the goose's name is Floyd. Punch a goose. This guy, because this goose was getting in his space, and the guy if was from Florida. If a goose gets up in your face, <laughs> yeah. you got to do something about it. <laughs> you got to. Can't let that slide. You got to take the goose out. So a Florida man was homeless, <laughs> and this goose kind of kept getting in his space. Fifty-nine-year-old man just couldn't take it anymore, so he just punched the goose and. Oh, sorry. Oh, my heavens. It's a swan. Sorry. Oh, it's a swan, oh. not a goose. I was thinking goose because I've the, been attacked by a goose. I didn't punch worse, it. A swan? Yeah. You don't punch a swan. They're, they're beautiful. They're, they're beautiful you animals. You don't punch a goose, but you definitely don't punch a swan. <laughs> I mean, I can see punching a goose if you had to, but a swan? <laughs> yeah, he punched the mother swan. And, uh, Let's the, leave all this goose punching to the professionals, okay? <laughs> I think a gander is a group of swan. Yeah. That's a swander. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not sure. What do I look like? Um, a zoologist? Hey, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, he punched him because the goose was ticked off because he was a little too close to the nest. Okay. But this guy held his ground. Anyway, punched the swan, and lo and behold, the cop was just sitting right there. What was the line from Billy Madison? Something about me, swan. Stop, stop looking at me, swan. Stop looking at me, swan. <laughs> <laughs> Conditional is better. <laughs> okay, you guys, seriously, how do you even remember that? Hey, Why Matt, do you waste any brain space don't, for that? It is so funny you bring this up because literally, and, and honestly, I am not exaggerating when I say this. We spent at least 20 minutes today. In your pre-show meeting. In the pre-show meeting, <laughs> watching clips and reciting uh, the... the uh, Scenes from Three you, Amigos. Yeah. Are you kidding? No, no, no. We did. Are yeah. you using them on your show? Probably not. You could probably work a few of those in there. That My is My little buttercup <laughs> oh, has that. the sweetest smile. <laughs> <laughs> See, we, you know, in our meetings, we just kind of meet. 
<laughs> you actually do work? Yeah, we do work. Amazing. And then, and then we break up, and then we go do more work. Well, see, we were so on top of it today and in the zone yeah. that we, we got done early, and so we had time to reminisce uh, about the 1986 classic Three Amigos. And you yeah. chose, okay, see, so in your free time, like you have 20 minutes. You're we're like, all business first. Oh, first sure, and foremost, yeah. Get all business. the business done. We're and, being liberal with the use of free time there, Yeah, too. that's true. I believe that. <laughs> As a guy that shares the wall with your where you have your meetings, yeah. I can I can attest that there's a lot of um, I don't know playtime there. Stay strong, brother. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of fun. It seems like. Mm-hmm. By the way, not as much as the BYU football players that were in there yesterday. Did you hear them screaming? Oh yeah, playing Xbox. What yeah. is that? What they were doing in there? Mm-hmm. That was like the green room, the holding mm-hmm. room. Yeah. Yeah. For the for the web chats and for some other interviews, yes, that was the whole that was the holding room. That was, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think I understand. That was fun. Yesterday was fun. It was good to see you guys. And oh, except Spencer, I never got to see you. Did they ever let you out? They, I I actually got out. Yeah, they gave me some food. It was awesome. And that was a good day for everybody. It was. Uh, your show. You're still doing it today, though, right? We are doing it today with three amigos appearance. Apparently, <laughs> Ned Needlander will show up as one so, of our guests. We're so worn out. That you know, we're just kind of that in that goofy, delirious mood. Oh yeah, so every day. This show should be one to remember. <laughs> oh, I can hardly wait. This is going to be fun to watch. Yeah, we will channel our energy together to focus on some takeaways from Media Day for sure, and then we will tell you the one thing that we learned, which jumped off the page, if you will. Yes. From the players or a player that nobody's talking about, but everybody should be talking. Oh, about. Oh, I know what it is. What do you think it is? Does it involve uh, Senior Mangum? It does not involve Senior Mangum. Oh. And it does not involve Senior Hill. Oh. But it does involve a man that they will hand the ball off to a lot. Really? Mm-hmm. The referee? Let's just say he's a football player. Oh, it's a football player. <laughs> not the ref? Okay, I thought they were just handing the football over to the ref. No, okay, though, okay. Though we did get some headlines from the quarterbacks for sure. <gasps> Excellent. They will be discussed, okay. but there's, there's one thing. There's one thing. Like, Whoa. It's just hanging out there. talking about this? Okay, okay. <gasps> that's a great tease. Mm. Are you guys waxed and ready? Mm-hmm. And Ron, Ronnie Jenkins, Ronnie Jenkins from the 1996 BYU football team, whack freshman of the year, NFL return man, he will join us as well. Ronnie Jenkins. Yep. Whack him. Whack-a-mole. <laughs> do you remember the whack, you guys? I do remember that. Yeah. Remember that day? The Western Athletic Conference. Good times. Good times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's going to be a great show. I'm going to finish mine. Then I'm going to run down and, uh, you know, you know, make my little cot and then turn on you guys and just listen. Just make listen. sure you ask permission from your wife. I will, for you sure. just tell her that you're <laughs> oh, going yeah. to do that. I'm not just going to go take a nap, and I'm not going to just punch a swan. <laughs> I'm going to life lessons. Always ask life lessons from Matt Townsend. Thanks, guys. Have a great show. You got it, Thanks, man. Matt. Knock them dead. They are. That's the thing. See, when you're all media dayed out, you're just exhausted. So, but you have so much in your brain, you can wing it. They didn't even have to prepare for their show. Man, we have to read hours and hours and hours today. Even after today's show, Ben and I are going to have to sit down with HR and his interpreter, and Don, just to work on Monday's show. <sighs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Hey, um, Amen, brother. Thank you, son. Um, crazy story, man, out of Australia. Listen to this. 
a man, an Australia farmer, um, cuts his face with a chainsaw. Okay. And then he ties his head back together. (laughs) It's not even funny that Ben's laughing and he drives himself to the hospital. It's a crazy story of just the will to survive. Listen to this. A man sliced his face open with a chainsaw accidentally working on his farm, and he survived the accident where the blade hit his face, and then he had to kind of tie with bandages his his head back together, right? Um, It was a bad cut. And Bill Singleton, 68, was working on his property in uh, Ballarat, about 100 kilometers west of Melbourne, Australia. He lost control of the chainsaw on May 6th, and... um, it you know created havoc and Mr. Singleton desperately made uh, his way to the car, tied up his his face and his head, and then uh, drove the car to the nearest hospital because he was unable to call for an ambulance because his accident ended up slicing some of his tongue, so he couldn't talk. The grandfather's fight for survival didn't end when he pulled in the hospital car park. Uh, with the 68-year-old saying he almost passed out and had, was, uh, had to kind of basically force himself to wake back up to get into the hospital. Mr. Singleton is back at home recovering and said he will continue working with chainsaws in the future. That is, that is some serious, you know, just want to stay alive right there. And as you know, we always like to end with a hero story. Our hero of the day will be a Turkish police officer who faced down a shot um, uh, and shot a machine gun wielding terrorist moments before the attacker detonated a suicide bomb at Istanbul's uh, Ataturk airport. He's the hero now, um, according to chairman of Turkish Airlines that visited the officer and thanked him for his work. This guy is a hero, he said. He told members of the press after he visited Derna. He stood by himself against a machine-gunning terrorist with his gun, took down the terrorist with the first shot. Derna was seriously injured in the attack, but he did not sustain life-threatening injuries. During the gunfight, he didn't feel uh, any of the bullets at first, Derna told AC. After uh, shooting the terrorist down, Derna didn't realize the attacker had a suicide bomb vest until he got closer. The terrorist was about to pull the trigger of the bomb at that moment, so he ran away immediately. If he didn't take him down, then uh, it would have been a pretty ugly scene. The attack left 42 dead, 238 others injured. And, uh, you know, horrible attack. You heard about it on the news. But this Turkish uh, police officer did what he had to do. He's a hero, folks. So are you, and so are the people we celebrate on the 4th of July. That's uh, That weekend starts right now for us and for many of you. But make it a great one, and make sure... You think about how lucky you are to live where you are and to have the great benefits that you do um, to be an American. It's not, uh, it doesn't come cheap and it doesn't come free. It comes from a lot of people that are willing to give their lives. So make it a great one. Also make sure you turn to your family, connect in, turn the technology off, spend some time playing, being with each other and just taking care of